0: <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Mary Rose for yet another, we say debate, but basically it's just a, a mass of abuse and smarty humour with a little bit of history thrown in, which you all seem to download anyway, so who's, who, who are the idiots really? So welcome, uh, today we have a hilarious topic because in a room full of absolute cynics, uh, we're doing History's Greatest Love Story. Oh. So we all know the, the first two will take it seriously. Beth, I'm guessing you've got something really yak worthy for us.
5: Yes, I have. Because oh,
0: I love love. I love it. Oh, shut up. <laughs>
5: <laughs> Bethany married her
0: childhood sweetheart and is just absolutely loved up to the eyeballs and none of us are bitter whatsoever. Charlie, who's <laughs> also got a wonderful husband bringing her red wine on tap while she's reporting, You're going to love this. Like This was your suggestion.
4: It was, it was indeed, because I'm, yeah, I'm a, I'm a terrible old romantic. I've watched too many movies. So, yeah, I like a messy romance, personally. Well, we just recorded
0: your episode, didn't we, on Clark Gable and Carol Lombard?
4: We did, yes. I can't wait for everyone to hear that.
0: I can't, I love the cartoon where you literally, you've just become Vivian Lee in the Gone with the Wind poster.
4: It's a dream, it's a life goal achieved. I'm done now.
0: <laughs> I love that when we said sorry to your husband for creating that cartoon, he just posted a picture of Susanna York in her pants from Battle of Britain I was like, That's <laughs> fine, like, oh, go here.
4: <laughs> he does love her in that film. There are there are three people in this marriage, definitely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, four including Clark. Oh, well, OK. Yeah. <laughs> uh, OK. And then there obviously there are a couple of people who are absolute pros and will take this really seriously, like Kate Spooner.
6: Um, yeah, I'm a proper cynic, though. So um, it was quite tricky to choose. But I did try to choose a lovey, happy, nice story.
0: And what I love about you is you, you always try and choose something that nobody else will bonfire over, um, as opposed to Kate Jameson, who has not been around for ages and has just waded into the pub and gone, everyone sit down and shut up because my one is mine. Hey, Kate.
7: Hi. I mean, I haven't really done that, but I'm just, yeah. I mean, I'm dead inside, but I love
1: this one. So <laughs>
0: <really dead. laughs> oh, Clive, are we going to get any Masterpiece Theatre tonight?
8: Just some accents. I'm a bit worried about these because they're meant to be American. It's I think I might like have Cockney. to.
0: It'll be funny because you made the Native Americans Cockney a couple of weeks ago, didn't you? Because you didn't know. Well, none of us knew that. exactly
8: what they sounded like, so Cockney was as good as anything else. But yeah, I would probably <laughs> go Cockney tonight.
9: I mean, Clive, hopefully it'll be they'll be as accurate as your Japanese ones were
8: a few weeks back. Yeah, so no <laughs> pretty much on point. Pretty much on point.
0: If you're like a, a Peter Jackson film, everyone just ends up being an orc with a Cockney accent.
8: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, we also have, right, so let's move on to the cynics in the room. Alina's still bitching because I won't let her talk about concentration camps in the pub, yeah, right? begging you all
10: right? Speaking about orcs with a Cockney accent.
11: Yeah. <laughs> you know what? It was a, It's a really good love story, but you've barred me. So unfortunately, everybody you can go home because I'm winning tonight.
0: Kit's one-liner just went way over your head there, didn't it?
11: <laughs> I don't even know what Kit said. I kind of dismissed him a little bit. Sorry, Kit.
0: <laughs> it's probably better that way <laughs> for kit anyway uh we have marcus as well who's already on the gin and princess marcus will not forgive us if we don't mention that
1: it was his birthday yesterday
12: thank you yes yes it was another year closer to the grave um no i had a good time tier three i've been in tier three for a while and spent all of the day researching the difference between primary and secondary sources which is really frustrating but really exciting for my research. So I've actually had a really good week and lots of gin and lots of cake. I'm going to be doing both tonight. So thank you.
0: I love that you say towards the grave as if you you didn't don a tweed jacket at the age of nineteen and start sprinting.
12: Man. From- <laughs> to be fair, at nineteen. I think it was a mole skin. When I the army. So yeah, I'm quite I'm quite happy in my tweed. That's my second skin. Warm <laughs> in Kent.
0: Well, I, would, I did try and look for a tweed effect onesie on Amazon for your birthday, but I settled for the gin instead because it was.
12: Yes, gin's very appreciated. I will be opening when I have a proper tonic as instructed by Alex.
0: Excellent. Uh, Chris Sams is here as well. Chris, are you now Covid free?
13: Um, yeah, mostly. Um, feeling run down quite a bit sometimes, but that might be because I'm sitting up late and playing on the Xbox or it could be the bug. Who knows? I'm not a doctor.
0: Is that because you finally got rid of your kids? Now you weren't in uh yeah. isolation anymore if you had did it back to mum.
13: Yeah, they went back on Sunday, so I got a, a day of day of peace and it's um it's frighteningly quiet here and tidy. So um yeah. It'd be nice to do this without having to every two seconds go, go to bed every time.
0: <laughs> yeah, it'd be nice for us not to keep apologising for swearing as well. We also have James with us, he's got <laughs> one eye on the absolute shit fest that is Villa versus Burnley. There's still no goals, James. It is as bad as I said it was. Look at it.
14: Oh, no, there's, there's chances, there's chances.
1: What um, they tell
0: you, James, is that actually you could have had 40,000 people in there tonight and just no one turned up because it's Villa. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh,
14: yeah, no, we're still in tier three. And yeah, but at least the kitchen's done. So now we've just got to figure out how to use the range master.
0: Excellent, well that's going to be a fun Christmas for you Dorman is in Dublin where it's still an absolute mess apparently
3: yeah, Always and forever Dreading Clive's accents because if it's not Cockney it's going to slip into Irish and I've heard that before Yeah.
12: Um, <laughs> the fact that Dorman didn't just blame the English for the state of uh, Dublin being a mess is quite surprising
3: uh, <laughs> Yeah but you know, it's Christmas, I'm feeling generous Marcus. Oh. On St Stephen's Day it's a different story <laughs> a Boxing Day nonsense <laughs>
0: Okay, we also have Matt with us. Boney, how you doing?
15: I'm very well. I'm, I'm, I'm drinking. I've been thinking about love all day, so what better way to spend a Thursday?
0: didn't you spend some of it? Oh no, it's tomorrow. You're down the police station, isn't
15: it? Oh yeah. No, thank thankfully that that's passed. So my my day off work is no longer involving trips to the roses. Hazard.
0: Although uh, I feel like we've kind of dragged you out of your lane today because you obviously are all about aircraft shit and wires and metal and building I'm,
15: planes. I'm, I'm falling back on racing cars and Nazis, so what more do you need?
0: Excellent. Well, it sounds like the best love story already. Lucky's going to judge tonight, aren't you, Lucky?
15: Too right.
2: Yeah, I've got nothing as far as love stories go. So I'm... Well,
0: you do try and take everything from World War One, don't you? So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. There's a lot of
2: love in World War
0: One. Well, um, as we can see from Chris Sams, it's not totally It's all my idea. Uh, Kit is with us in South Korea. Hello, Kit.
10: Hello. Doing little love hearts for you. That's that's South Korean for I Love You.
0: Oh, love you too, man. How's your severed head?
10: Yeah, well, I don't know.
2: My mum's looking after
10: it. Um I'm flying back to the UK uh, in a couple of days, so I'm gonna I'm gonna see Amelia, see how she's doing.
0: Um, i'd say we do have a guest judge with us today and i'll to introduce him now because i have to explain to the wonderful simon london broadcaster extraordinaire who has mistakenly <laughs> thought it would be fun to join us in the pub today he <laughs> is talking about the replica amelia clark head he ordered uh, that he yes. ordered under the guise of being for some scientific project but has creeped his mum out so much she's looking after that and the tortoise that she's hidden it under a pillowcase
16: yeah, I'm going to probably listen to this recording back and go through that sentence really slowly to see exactly <laughs> what you said then, because uh, I, I heard tortoise, mother, seven head and pillowcase, and uh, <laughs> I'm sure it all makes sense, but I'm just going to have to go and listen to that again, but thank you. You will
12: be a witness at the trial.
1: <laughs> I will. <laughs>
15: it's not going to make any more sense, even if you drink. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Welcome to the Mary Rose. You're on the red wine, aren't you? I am,
16: I am. Thank you very much uh, for inviting me and congratulations to all of you for keeping uh, the nation entertained and happy with um, hundreds and hundreds of podcasts and I love these Mary Rose uh, discussions as well. Um, a very happy accident to come across you guys last week and uh, yeah, um, BBC Radio London, I hope you got a lot of feedback from that because uh, it's very enjoyable and I'm looking forward to tonight.
0: We did. I did like Gabby Roslin's absolute astonishment at the amount of episodes we've done. It's like, yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, we are that crazy. <laughs>
1: Incredible. And tired. and tired. Yeah. And
12: and at the like, beginning, if you really appreciate it, the uh, the Patreon page has just been updated
0: five minutes ago by Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Marcus. Thank you, Thank you Marcus. Right. As ever, Holmes is in the judging seat as well. You're right, Holmes. Yeah,
9: no, not too bad. Not too bad.
0: You sound a little bit down. Would you run out of beer?
9: No, I've not started yet. Actually, I was going to pace myself, but looking at the amount of people we've got on this tonight, I think even if I end up starting halfway through, I'll still end up putting a fair amount away. So I'll, I'll stand water for a little bit. I think.
0: Excellent. Um, and I've just because there are so many. Uh, if I can find the Australia buzzer, I'll dig it out. But if not, I'm just going to mute you if you start boring me. So no pressure, people. And also, we we have one more person who's just dropped in late as you like because he's that cynical in love um, that he just he was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna turn up a quarter past because it's shit. Zach,
17: you're right. I'm alright. Um, if anybody does my washing machine and me as history's <laughs> greatest love affair, I will kill you for it. Um. <laughs> you
0: know it's coming. You know it's coming. If I can hear tearing room? paper up, yeah. All the people in this room, Zach, how many, they weren't all gonna not take this opportunity to mock your washing machine and your obsession with it.
17: I feel Marcus is probably, Marcus wouldn't tell me what he was doing tonight and he always fills me in because he normally goes with something Napoleonic. So I, th- I, of the people who are probably going to do it, it's either gonna be him or it's gonna be Dorman. How I do reckon. you know it's
6: not me? Such a Because
17: cynic. Y- you pretend to like me, so. <laughs> <laughs> And I make no such pretensions.
12: <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure that you could describe
9: Zach's relationship with his washing machine as a torrid affair. It's more like a, a loveless marriage of 30 years with simmering resentment, isn't it?
1: Yeah. <laughs> A divorce is on you know your cards. You oh, marriage!
0: What? <laughs> yeah, yeah <nice. laughs> you know what's hilarious is that beth messaged me today going i just have no idea what to get that for christmas and i got went on ebay and found one of those old-fashioned washing scrubbing board things a retro one,
1: <laughs>
0: and sent it to her and it was like it's only 21 quid and she was like no i want to buy him something nice and i was like but that would be hilarious uh yeah, anyway, right, let's get on with this because this this room is very full up tonight. Um so you will all be I will invoke the five minute rule on you today. Uh let's start with I don't should we start with someone who's actually gonna take it seriously and do something really lovely and just get it out of the way so the rest of us can vomit and move on. Let's do Beth before she drinks too much and just starts heckling everyone else in the room.
5: Well, that won't take long, but let's be honest. Um <laughs> Right. Okay. I'll I'll start. Why not? Why not? Okay. so as has been pretty much been said already, I am a complete sucker for love. I love love a lot. Um, The chance to love and be loved in return is truly one of the best parts of being human. And it's something that's yearned for around the world. Love stories make up the majority of movies, songs and books. And to me, the greatest love story of all time is from a book. It's not a true story, but it is the most classic love story, where two protagonists who at the beginning of their story hate each other, but by the end come to love the other very intensely. The story covers a wide variety of topics, not just love. It covers family, scandal, problems surrounding women in Regency England, and of course, the ever-present topic of finding a husband because it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. And so for me, written by one of the greatest romantic authors ever, Pride and Prejudice and Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy is the world's greatest love story. If you've never read Pride and Prejudice, and if not, why not? Let me briefly recap for you. Elizabeth Bennet is the spirited daughter, the spirited second of five daughters of Mr. and Mrs. Bennet, who, as an aside, are one of the funniest pairings anywhere that you can find in literature. The Bennets are solidly middle class, but not wealthy, and with no male heir. So when Mr. Bennet dies, their house will pass down to the next male in line, an oily, slimy character by the name of Mr. Collins, a reverend, who's quite marrying, quite up for marrying one of the Bennet girls. Enter Mr. Bingley, and then our hero, Fitzwilliam Darcy. Bingley rents Netherfield Park and Darcy is a haughty best friend who comes along for the ride. Darcy is super wealthy. He has an income of around 10000 a year, which in today's money is about £12 million. He has a beautiful estate in Derbyshire, but he simply can't be doing with any of the local girls who are way too basic for a man of distinction like him. Lizzie Bennet is having none of this and none of Darcy's behaviour either she also has no time for the attentions of the odious Mr. Collins. She's determined to marry for love and hopefully to a man who she can actually have a civilised conversation with. Someone a bit like Mr. Wickham, who's not a big fan of Darcy himself, but Wickham turns out to be a major idiot, blah, blah, whatever you want to call him, who ends up running off with the youngest Bennett's sister, Lydia, ensuring that she and her sisters are all but ruined by the scandal until Darcy steps in to restore the family's fortune. Deeds not words maketh the man, and Elizabeth realises that Darcy is not the sneering, snooty snob she thought he was, and eventually love triumphs. The first time I ever encountered Pride and Prejudice was when I was a child, when watching the five-hour epic that was made for TV, starring the wonderful Jennifer Ely and Colin Firth. And who still, who doesn't still swoon a little over that wet shirt scene? I quickly became entranced with the story and have been in love with it ever since. What really mesmerized me then, and still does today, and also what makes Pride and Prejudice the greatest love story in the world, is how Elizabeth Bennet refuses to compromise on what her heart most yearns for. She is no simpering miss in a bonnet, but a young woman who wants to marry a man that she loves and respects, At a time when marriage was a business transaction and women were property, their ownership passing from father to husband. Even though Elizabeth barely has a dowry as one of five daughters, especially after Wickham expects to be paid for marrying Lydia rather than abandoning her, and her mother laying extreme pressure on her to remarry Mr Collins, she still refuses him. She's not afraid to mince her words for people's other people's feelings, which she quite dramatically does for Mr. Collins when she tells him, you could not make me happy and I am convinced that I am the last woman in the world who would make you so. And she didn't refuse him because she's holding out for Mr. Darcy, because at that point in time she detests him, but because she knows that her worth can't be counted in coins. The relationship that develops between Elizabeth and Darcy, despite his wealth and status, is one of equals. Elizabeth matches Darcy in intellect, and when it comes to quick-wittedness and empathy, she far outstrips him. The best bits of Pride and Prejudice, the ones that make you squeal in delight, are when Lizzie and Darcy verbally spar, and she always gets the better of him, and makes him see the world from her side of the fence. Regardless of the overarching societal problems around the treatment of women as little more than property in Regency England, Lizzie and Darcy are inherently equal in many ways equal in stubbornness, equal in character. Though it's ultimately it's Darcy that rescues the Bennets from ruin, though I have no doubt that if Pride and Prejudice was written today, Lizzie Bennet would have the means and the technology to come up with a cunning plan to do that herself. It's equal opportunities rescuing. Elizabeth rescues Darcy too. She rescues him from the clutches of Caroline Bingley, a prototype mean girl. But more importantly, she rescues him from his own pride, puncturing it with her dry humour, and occasionally some quite brutal home truths, including what she says to him after he presents to her quite possibly the worst marriage proposal in history. From the very beginning, from the very moment, I may almost say, of my acquaintance with you, your manners, impressing me with the fullest belief of your arrogance, your conceit, and your selfish disdain for the feelings of others, were such to as form the groundwork of disapprobation on which succeeding events have built so immovable of dislike, and had I not known you month before, I felt that you were the last man in the world whom I could ever be prevailed upon to marry. In true romantic novel style, Darcy has to earn Elizabeth's love. He has to stop flaring his nostrils, acting all superior and hiding his heart. So when Elizabeth and Darcy finally abit their feelings, without so much as a kiss or holding hands, love has conquered his pride, her prejudice, and the rigid social structure of Regency society. Elizabeth Bennett has married for love and ten thousand a year and a big country estate are just an added bonus. What could be more perfect? Pride and Prejudice established the template for an affinity of romantic novels, yet no subsequent love story has ever come close to equaling the delights of the original. The love that Lizzie and Mr. Darcy have for each other is a true love, but not an unattainable one. Because despite everything, and despite seeing the worst in each despite seeing the other at their very worst, they still love each other anyway. To me, it is the greatest love story in the world. In fact, it is so perfect a love story that I will fight to the death anyone who disagrees with me, though I'm sure Miss Jane Austen would be appalled at such unladylike behaviour.
0: Beth, you know I love you, but... <laughs> Zach wants to fight you. Um, oh, God bless you for coming on and doing that, knowing what we did to you after you argued for Shakespeare for the greatest Britain. Um after oh, so we just savaged him. I have to say though that my only comment on this is that she hated him because he was a prick and then she found out he was worth 10,000 a year. I'm not sure it was all about the love, but I'm not getting involved in that. I'll let, cause would not, let's go, oh, who, which cynic should we hand, oh, do you know what? Let's hand it over to Simon first. I know this is a bit, cause we let you do comments or questions on her argument because I'm going easy on her because as soon as she did that first quote, you knew where she was going, didn't you?
16: I did so um, I've got a couple of comments first and then and then questions. so the first one is, is this just a book that has been rammed down our throats over and over and over and over again <laughs> uh, trying to make us decide that it's one of the it's kind of a bit my my favorite book from A level English is uh, Vanity Fair, and I've kind of lost count the amount of times they've made that. And actually, it doesn't kind of get it. It's a great book, but it doesn't get any better. And I'm wondering that about Pride and Prejudice. Is it one of those things that doesn't really get any better? And in the end, they didn't they try and update it? Bridget Jones' diary, I believe, is supposed to be an updated version of Pride and Prejudice, some might say.
5: Also brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: uh, it was Zach, I think, that said in the chat that he preferred Pride and Prejudice and Zombies to the original.
16: I do like the idea of, of pride and extreme prejudice. I, I went out for two years with a Jewish girl and I know exactly what that was like, um, having been Friday night dinners being put on the ch- children's table. Um, but uh, I admire your spunk for bringing this one up to having uh, met all your, all your colleagues in the first five minutes before we started recording. Uh,
4: I was going to say,
0: I don't know why I keep doing this to myself. Why do you keep doing it? <laughs> because you keep agreeing after you've had a bottle of wine. From
16: your two last. So, yes, so I'm
0: I'm
2: going to
16: say the rules seem to be slightly bent, and I'm just wondering whether we're supposed to believe this is the greatest love story, and I'm not sure whether that is the case.
0: That was the nicest way of telling her that it's shit (laughs) I've ever heard. That's the nicest way of saying there's no way I'm picking that that anyone has ever come up with. As you'll see now from Holmes, he's slightly less gracious about it, aren't you, Holmes?
9: Yeah, I think I'm going to struggle with this tonight anyway because, you know, Beth did an admirable job in delivering it and making the case. But the subject matter, I was writing notes and stuff, but none of it was going in. I could have been, you know, I could have been writing it at like a bus timetable or something like that. I suppose, um, given that this is supposed to be vaguely based on history. Beth, why should we choose a fictional romance over a historical one?
5: For me, personally, <laughs> um, no true love story matches up because we've all got our foibles and our uh our, our problems and a, a speak for yourself fictional one I suppose. It's 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 like the ideal, isn't it?
0: You like the escapism, don't you?
5: Yeah I suppose I do.
0: What's really funny, actually, from a psychological point of view, is that Holmes also married, like, his uni-sweetheart, and he's a complete cynic who hates love stories.
1: Exactly.
9: And also, like, nobody's recast our story. Nobody's retold our story and cast Colin Firth in
12: my role either.
0: Too much gravy.
12: (laughs) They didn't need to. That's the reason why.
5: (laughs) He refused to do the Northern accent. (laughs) I wonder if the escapism, it's, it's, it's all, as you say, the the escapism, like it's, it's the ideal. It's its the removal from every day, which I suppose is just so shit. Then why would you not want to read something that sparks enjoyment or watch something that sparks enjoyment, whether it be Pride and Prejudice or whether it be, I don't know, Das Boot for Locking. You know, it's, it's, (laughs) it's, is it not the same sort of idea that it's, it, it's something different from every day which is yeah yeah yeah
0: but more importantly in the chat Kits just said emergency who would we cast as homes in a film of his life <laughs> <laughs> sean bean
9: if we got one yeah i once i occasionally I've- if
2: daniel Radcliffe could, could, could put some weight on i think it's a contender
9: <laughs> <laughs> occasionally i've been i've been mistaken for hugh dennis twice which you might not be able to because i've got my glasses on but um one bloke came out of a pub when I was smoking outside once, came up to me and, and then yeah, it said, yeah, it is, isn't it? It's Steve Punt. So I was like, A, you're wrong and B, you're wrong again. But yeah, I'll leave that up to you. <laughs> maybe, we
1: can in a, maybe
9: in the probably. new year we can have a hold down the pub on who do I look like.
0: Yeah, If we haven't run out of ideas. We'll go there right before we get to your history's greatest disease. That everybody <laughs> shout on when you suggested that uh lucky any comments on pride and prejudice
2: yes i do um uh firstly i'd like to thank uh beth for her boldness in mentioning dust (laughs) boots um we all enjoyed that um i am i gonna make a hat trick of um naysayers no i'm not actually i think she's entered into the spirit of this very well and i have to say that in looking at historical literature as a historical source and a comment on the society of the time i think it's valuable in that sort of sense so yes it has a place in um today's reckoning um and it's good i think it's a strong contender actually for, for for a great love story it's of its time of course it is um i think maybe i'd even not criticize beth for her her choice i i think i'd maybe develop the arguments a little bit and and although uh, elizabeth elizabeth Fenner is yeah is. Refuses to compromise, doesn't mince her words, that's fine. I don't think she's an unthinking character, and actually the development, and the softening, uh, towards Mr. Darcy has got an, has got an interesting part of the story, uh, for me, as well as, yes, his e- excess of pride, which he's caused to, to think about as well. So, uh, a reflective piece of work, one that definitely has its place in, in today's running, and not bad chat at yeah. all.
9: I'm slightly concerned that everyone now is going to chuck a reference to Das Bootin just to get Lockie on side.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: Simon, you weren't here for that. We did History's Greatest War Film and Lockie went for Das Boot and literally the second he finished his argument, Holmes just like gauged it as the shittest thing he's ever seen in his life and crap. No water. way! And, yeah, it was the length and the fact that Holmes is a uh, naval cynic, but yeah.
2: Das short attention span. Das Boot has to
0: be
16: up there. Das Boot has to be in the top five greatest uh, war films ever made.
0: Sorry.
12: Oh, <laughs> you should have been on that episode. <laughs> but, <laughs> seriously,
0: Simon, it didn't. It came last, even no. even though Chris took the piss and did the Patriot as the greatest war film ever made.
15: No,
16: that's awful. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with you, Lot? There's never <laughs> been a bad film set on a submarine. Fact.
15: Oh yes,
14: there have. Um, <coughs> you find <laughs> someone. Um, Hunter, yeah, thank Hunter you, Charlie. Killer. I didn't <laughs> want to mention that travesty. <laughs>
0: Right, okay, let's stick with love stories. Thank you very much, Beth. You may now continue gorging yourself on skittles and cider. um, And we look forward to when you start removing items of clothing about half an hour's time. (laughs) Let's move on to... Let's go to Kate Jameson. You ready?
7: Uh, Yeah, I can be. uh, It's fine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's not like you needed to read up on this, is it?
7: No, not really.
0: (laughs) Who have you selected as, as history's greatest love story?
7: I have very controversially selected Horatio Nelson and
0: Emma Hamilton. Ooh, good massively good. controversial seeing as you're an 18th yeah, century. I'll just fall off my sure.
2: chair and then and then get back on and then we can <laughs> <keep> going again.
15: <laughs> I think every, head best head to slide. be made. <laughs> I think we all should have done. Lady Hamilton and Lord Nelson just to see that we get, what, one, two, three dozen different takes on it. I think that would have been quite funny. <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean, Alina would have killed herself. With I, think that. Everybody
15: did do,
16: <laughs> I think everybody did do Lady <laughs> Hamilton, didn't they?
0: Yep. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> okay, Kate, go. Make your argument. Okay, so
7: technically it wasn't affair, as we know, uh, because he was in fact married to Frances Nisbet. In fact, he once wrote in the early days of knowing Emma Hamilton to his wife that he hoped one day to have the pleasure of introducing her to Lady Hamilton because she is one of the very best women in the world, which personally I would not be happy with. Um, anyway, Nelson met Emma Hamilton in Naples in 1793, which is where her then husband, Sir William Hamilton, was stationed as the British ambassador, Um, by 1799, Nelson and Emma Hamilton had become very close and become lovers. Sir William Hamilton basically knew about this. He was quite a lot older than Emma Hamilton, uh, and essentially kind of allowed it to happen. Uh, I think that he must've known, but he sort of looked the other, other way, as long as Emma stayed with him. Uh, Nelson absolutely adored Emma. She was engaged with public affairs. She helped the Queen of Naples, um, and she was also lacking in that kind of, I don't know what the word I want is, subservience, I guess, of women at the time who were very passive and went along with their husband. And Emma was very spirited, very high spirited, constantly having parties, uh, having opinions of her own and sharing them. Uh, and actually quite interestingly in around 1800, when they traveled back across Europe by road although well by horse and carriage uh, rather than by sea because emma hamilton got seasick uh, someone said that she saw lady hamilton take possession of nelson and that he was the most submissive and devoted man they had ever seen um and obviously she didn't try and stifle any of his ambition she pushed him she challenged him and they were just Incredibly in love. You can read Nelson's letters to her saying that, you know, he was absolutely besotted and she was his forever and ever and ever. Um, there was one letter which is quite famous, which I'm going to share because I feel like you guys would all appreciate it, which is basically ye old sexting. Uh, and he was saying that he wrote he wrote to her that saying that he had dreamt of her 20 times in the night and that he was at a table and Emma Hamilton wasn't present. He was sat between a princess who he detested uh, and another woman who were both trying to seduce him and take liberties with him that he wouldn't let anyone but Emma take. Uh, but the consequence was that he knocked them down and took Emma in an embrace and whispered that he loved her and kissed her fervently and they enjoyed the height of love, uh, which is, yeah... Well, I mean, I'll let you ex- imagine what that one is.
0: Um, is That's something to do with a washing machine, but we'll gloss over that.
7: Yeah, well, I think I think he referred to a part of his enough to Me as pudding in one letter. Nelson's
1: um,
10: column.
7: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, some, at one point it became clear that Nelson basically had to choose between Emma and his wife. Uh, And he very much chose Emma and basically said to her that she was his wife in his eyes and she was the face of heaven. And they then ended up having Horatia, which was not very subtle, uh, a child and kept in touch because Nelson was away for most of their sort of six year dalliance, I suppose, um, with some very, very passionate letters. They wrote poems to each other. I think in one of them, he basically said that she was his guardian angel and that he was forced apart from her and couldn't couldn't do it and he was separated from all he held dear in this world and what was the use of living in such an existence um and that the only thing that would cause him to be separated from her was his duty uh because you know he was also a very good naval officer ahead of being a very bad husband apparently um when he went back to sea after Sir William Hamilton had died, uh, because they'd been living in this kind of menage a trois house situation, uh, it basically became almost a marriage between Emma and Nelson. They actually swapped rings in a a parish church near Merton um, and received communion. And for all intents and purposes, in Nelson's mind, they were married by the time he went to Trafalgar, where he obviously died. Um, And unfortunately... Emma Hamilton, as many of you may know, died in poverty because everyone ignored Nelson's wishes to look after her because it was very much frowned upon to have a mistress. Um, But I would happily say that they were very much in love. And even if you are a complete cynic, reading the letters between Emma and Horatio are just, some of them are just beautiful. And that is where I will leave it.
0: I really like that one. Uh, Not that I'm at all biased because I love... Nelson. Um, although, you know, you said he was a dick for that letter he wrote. Alina and I did a recording on Charles Dickens this week because we were like, let's have a really happy Christmas Eve podcast about a Christmas carol and everything. Yeah. Uh, we had Louise Creechin on. Um, and actually, he's a dick to the extent that he sent his wife away for a weekend. And when she came back home, he'd built a wall down the middle of the bedroom that's drastic whoa that makes nelson look like an awesome husband beth how would you react if you came home and your husband had built a wall <laughs> i don't know
12: it might have been me that built the wall um <laughs> <laughs> did dickens make the mexicans pay for it yeah
5: that's right
0: <laughs> i think the word trumpian got used in that podcast so tune in for that one that's awesome uh Holmes, any comments on this one
9: yeah, I like this one mainly because he's sort of a local boy to where I, where I live, really, and also. The- yeah, the
0: exchanging of the ring things is round the corner from us, isn't it?
9: Yeah, and it's an incredible church. I don't know if any. It's in um. It's just sort of down some back streets from South Wimbledon, but it's like leaving London and ending up in. The, you go through a little hedge, and it's like this medieval church from the Cotswolds appears in front of you. It's astonishing. It's well worth a visit if anyone's in the area, and it's got quite a nice funky Art Deco First World War memorial. It's quite different as well. And... With the Nelson and Mrs. and Emma Hamilton stuff, I get it. But was it a massive scandal at the time? Because everything I, I hadn't read that much, but it doesn't seem to have sort of been a scandal to the extent it freaked everyone out and was on the front pages like footballers would be these days.
7: Yeah, I mean, it was a scandal and they were definitely subject to quite a lot of scrutiny and critique, I think, from a lot of people. Um, the Admiralty certainly weren't very happy with it and oh. tried to keep them at sea as much as possible. But it seems to have become more scandalous thanks to the Victorians who were sort of trying to erase any proof of Nelson being not this perfect hero. And I think partly that kind of heroism of Nelson is what people have wanted to remember. So his affair with Emma Hamilton has been put down to her, you know, being this distraction and a silly, silly woman that he was having an affair with, but actually she, she was very much an influential person in Naples. Um, She was, she was very smart and, I think probably he had a lot more in common with her than his wife, certainly. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's basically come from the Victorians trying to give him a bit more
0: morals. What kind of idiotic people go back on history and start rewording it for their <laughs> Oh, no, wait, that's exactly what we've been doing in 2020. <laughs> I think
7: it's just, you know, at that point, Nelson, obviously, you know, he died at the, the height of his career, really, and he was this ideal of this heroic masculinity, and they didn't want that taken away
0: from him because he had this foolish love affair. Which is quite funny because he was the size of a 12-year-old girl. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I butted in on you.
9: No, I mean, I think you answered the question. I was going to say, because the other point is that Emma Hamilton seems slyly to have been unfairly remembered. There was a sort of hint that she put it about a bit, that type of thing, which I guess it goes back to. Is that, does that go back to the sort of rewriting of the story in Victorian times?
7: Uh, not really. So actually, she's she's one of the people that I would make everyone go and read about. Um, so she actually started working in a brothel when she was 13, uh, dressed up in sort of Greek and Roman costumes um, to entertain people, which is why then when she was in Naples, Nelson saw her performing her... Oh, what were they called? My brain's gone. Basically, she was performing these attitudes. And, uh, and, and she actually, did that when she was...
9: She, sorry, she did that when she was 13?
7: She was 13, yeah.
9: Oh, it shows um, when you were at school, it, it's, it's important to get those work experience applications in first, <laughs> otherwise you never know where you're going to end up, really. <laughs>
7: yeah. um, and she had a really hard life, actually. Um, so by the time she met William Hamilton, I mean, she went off to Naples. She wasn't meant to be going to Naples. She got packed off and basically told that was what was happening by the guy she was actually in love with, who I think was William Hamilton's nephew. Um, So she did have quite a hard, hard life. Um, But there's so much more to her life than just her affair with Nelson. Um, I think they've attributed the fact that all of the Jane Austen sort of dress fashion came from Emma Hamilton's outfits. Um, And she was one of the first
0: people that really was sort of seen to be a pinup. People had pictures of her on their walls and things like that and it's a rarity, isn't it, in that she's a woman from that period that didn't start off with any means. Who there is source material about? Yeah, absolutely. I think she's. I mean, she started as Amy
7: Lyons in Wales in a tiny little village.
0: Right. Well, that's your job for the next five years: is a book on Emma Hamilton.
7: Yeah. Uh, there's already one. I'm actually. I'm supposed to be doing a documentary on her next year,
0: so we'll see if that happens. <laughs> Amazing. Lockie, any questions on Emma Hamilton?
2: Yeah, a couple. Um, did she really love Nelson? Lockie, can you really love anyone? You know, we got time to address this. <laughs> well, I mean, she's she's been through a lot. Well, no, no, there's a second part to my question once I've got an
1: answer to that.
7: Oh, yeah, she she absolutely adored Nelson. I mean, after the Nile, uh, Nelson got back to Naples and she was wearing, what was it she said? She, she wrote to him saying that she was wearing a shawl that was navy blue and covered in anchors and she wore and jewelry, underneath that.
12: nothing at all (laughs) um
7: and she wore nelson's initial round her neck and i mean i yeah if she wasn't in love with him i'd be very surprised when when you've read all of her letters in fact if anyone is interested in reading her letters the navy Records society have just brought out a volume of the letters between nelson and emma hamilton which is really interesting
0: some eighteenth century porn for christmas people
2: Part, part part 2 was kind of related in the sense because i know um we sometimes think of nelson as having some fatalistic attitude ahead of trafalgar and and some sense of knowing what he was what he was going off to and i, I wondered if uh if he'd had doubts about um emma's feelings for him and whether that was contributing to it um
7: I don't know if he had doubts about her. Things. He was a very jealous man though. There are letters that uh, she said that she was at a party or a dinner and the Prince of Wales was there and essentially sort of trying it on a little and Nelson was incredibly jealous um, and protective over her.
0: Simon, any questions? comments? Uh, yeah, so
16: this I have to say that um, at the very beginning when there was a danger that I would have to take part, I was thinking... Off the top of my head, the history's greatest love stories, and you kind of think Antony, Cleopatra, um, uh, Nell Gwynn, Charles II, and Emma Hamilton, and and Nelson. They're the ones that kind of spring to mind. Uh, apart from James, Harriet, and that dog. Uh, but <laughs> I, um, so so yeah. So what? What's really interesting is how she was shunned by society afterwards. And I kind of always think that if, if society likes you or if you're a nice person, you're you gen, you're generally sort of looked after. Somebody's there for you. Somebody kind of puts out a sort of safety blanket for you or safety net for you. Was it a case of that she was, in herself was she a nice person why did everybody kind of sort of abandon her at the end
7: i think a lot of it came down to the fact that it was very much frowned upon uh and people found out about the way that he treated his wife just basically stopping talking to her he did actually keep paying for his wife and gave her money uh even i think beyond his death she was very much looked after um but i think emma hamilton was certainly seen as the kind of homewrecker um and uh, yeah, she died in poverty in Calais and it was a very, very sad story. Nelson had asked his country, he'd left her as a, a legacy to his country for people to look after her and they just completely ignored her. She had a little bit of money that he'd left to his family to give to her. Um, but otherwise, yeah, she she had a very sad later few years.
0: It's always with the slut shining, isn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so that is Nelson and Emma Hamilton. Thank you very much. Chris, have you figured out your microphone issues?
13: Um, yeah, it depends. Can you hear me? <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> okay, so Chris, uh, you nicked my idea. You're right. I'm um, yeah, I'm not... Yeah, You just, if you don't do it justice, I'll beat you. Deal? Uh,
13: um, I'll put my bed in Medway Hospital now then. Um <clears throat> But the good thing is, I get to talk about uh, three of my favorite things, um one all of them involving the greatest country in the world uh Germany so uh, uh, like Beth, I spent a lot of time uh, in my early twenties thinking about love and trying to read a lot of philosophy and um, I read this um, I really liked this quote, which is what i 'm using to define uh, the love in my current story, which is from the uh, German poet and philosopher uh, von Goethe who said, uh, true love is love that stays constant forever, whatever its fortune, whether requited or scorned, filled or sent empty away. Which leads me quite nicely to another one of the world's greatest Germans, Kaiser Wilhelm and his love for himself. Because (laughs) this love for himself and his policies often could be confused for a love for the fatherland, but was really more about him. As I, will, as I will go on to explain. Uh, but it, it, it never changed, be it through the height of the Second Reich to the collapse, to the dark depths of the First World War, or even into hopping on a train and running to Holland because the Allies are coming. Even, sitting, like in, he, he's... even
0: sitting in Holland and writing angry letters to Hitler as well.
13: <laughs> that, absolutely. And blaming the British for every, everything that had gone wrong in his life because it wasn't him, it was everybody else. Now, um as my sister would say, there he has so many psychological issues that uh, uh, an entire uh, conference of psychologists could spend the weekend dissecting him and his emotional needs. Um, and I, I, I'm not even going to give you a, a potted biography of his life of his childhood, um, because frankly, not many people will care.
0: Can I do it? In yeah, 10 go for it. wouldn't come out, dragged him out, yeah. fucked his arm. Uh, then used every kind of weirdo batshit Victorian stuff like electrocution and torture to make him look normal, couldn't even cut up his own dinner, let alone ride a horse and be a military bloke, so it was severely uh, small man syndrome, the end.
13: Yep, and his mother, even, his mother even wrote to Queen Victoria to say, um, where is it, uh, it had been uh, my uh, my uh, dream of, of my life to have a son who um, in soul and spirit would be um, be like our beloved Papa, and Wilhelm was not it. So, not even his parents liked him, which might explain why he he, he loved himself quite a lot. Um, instead of doing his whole career, I've, I've got a couple of instances that kind of show his love for himself. Uh, the first one was um, Germany was quite a poor country; it's quite a new country, and um, they were hemorrhaging um, citizens because they, it was too expensive to live there. So, everyone's going to America so um the chancellor uh leo graf von capri uh brought in uh trade measures to lower lower prices which upset the prussian junkers because it then meant that they weren't making any money on food so they complained to the crown and the kaiser said well no i'm happy with this and he went out and he said the real enemy is socialists we need to fight the left instead and the junker said that's great okay yeah socialists they're bad you need to do stuff to the left Get rid of the left-wing parties, and the left-wing parties came out and said, "Well, what are you going to do? That's that's awful. What are, we, what are you going to do?" And the Kaiser went, um, um, "Bring me my chancellor." So the chancellor comes in, knowing full well that everyone's backing him, that the Kaiser has his, is giving him backing, and the Kaiser said, "My nerves are shot. I'm going to have to sack you." This is all no, go away. And that was his. That, he had literally had a five-minute dismissal, and he was only got rid of because the Kaiser was not. It was it was denting his 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 star. Um, if you look at the kaiser's foreign policy it's an absolute nightmare he wanders around believing that he is the linchpin of um, diplomacy within europe um, because he's related to everyone by money or marriage and he's um he's takes tsar nicholas ii on on um, boating trips and see they had a secret um, meeting in i think it was 1903 1904 um which he forces uh, poor nicholas to sign a treaty of friendship on the back of a napkin Which as soon as he gets back to Berlin, all the German diplomats go, no, you can't do that. What what are you doing? He rode through the streets of, um, Morocco on a white horse to tell the Sultan in 1905 that he would back them against the French. Again, everyone sort of sits there going, oh, what are you, what are you doing? But for him, he felt that this was, this was how it was done. I am the Emperor of Germany. This is, this is, this is great. And like I said, everyone, everyone else thought it was bad. He even was telling, um, the emperor of austro-hungary how to carry out his foreign affairs in the wake of sarajevo and that he was hoping even um, in, as the july crisis got worse the kaiser was convinced that he'd managed to stop the war but moving on to the most important one uh and back into my lane the german navy uh was his greatest um vanity project uh the kaiser um loved uh, he'd, he'd grown up around the royal navy he'd loved the british ships and he wanted germany to have the same thing whether whether it's because he loved germany and he wanted them to compete on the world stage or simply because he hated the british um his um, british cousins um who weren't very nice to him but anyway he and his brother heinrich and the admiral turpitz not the pig um set about modernizing the german navy creating a big huge navy that, could, that within about 10, 15 years, went from being a backwater sail, mostly sail, a few steamships, to being the second most modern navy in Europe, and arguably the most powerful. <coughs> and um, but he, it was so; it became a symbol of his Reich and his and his his very persona of the, these great white ships. That after the Battle of Dogger Bank, which really didn't it didn't go too badly for the Germans, they only lost one ship. But he immediately ordered that the navy be locked up. And kept safely in port because he he didn't want to lose it. And when the sailors revolted in 1918, it wasn't that they were revolting against the conditions of the war; they were revolting against him personally. He and he took it very very badly, and even uh, stated, "I have no navy." Uh, He just took everything so personally because it was all about him. And the only thing he didn't um, the only thing he didn't um, take the Kaiser Wilhelm show to. Was, uh, the war, the war in general because he suddenly realized that all the other, all the, none of the generals would take any notice of him when he rolled in. It's like, I am here. What are we doing? And they just wouldn't take him seriously. And in the end, he ended up being, um, held, held to ransom by, uh, Ludendorff and Hinden, Hindenburg on a regular basis. But as Alex said, in, in post war, he goes into, goes to Holland and he just spends his whole time saying, well, look at me. I'm, I was the emperor. Why, why is this, look what's happening to Germany? It's because I'm not there. We need to have the. They need to have. The, and he refused to go back to to Germany until the monarchy was restored, which is why he's still buried in Holland. But yeah, it, it may seem a bit one-sided, but the Kaiser the Kaiser's love for himself, and it, you can see it in all the propaganda. and propaganda. But any pictures of of him, you can see the Kaiser stood there with a glowing light around him, with a self-important look on his face. It, it was it was always always about him, not his two wives, not even his children. It was about he, he. He might argue that it was for Germany and the Greater Reich, but really, it, it was all about him. And it was a love that never changed, or and was fully requited. And as by Goethe's benchmark, it can be the only true love story.
0: Uh, he was an absolute fucking loon, to be frank. You didn't even mention any of my <laughs> top three of his diplomatic fails, which are telling Queen Victoria how to run the Royal Navy. Good luck with that. Uh, spanking yeah. the Tsar of Bulgaria on the arse at a public function and also at a public function telling the King of Italy that he was a dwarf, which he was very short, but it's still not the best way to lead into diplomatic uh, negotiations. So yeah, I, he was ultimately an absolute loon and totally screwed up.
2: Is he where Prince Philip got a lot of his good material?
0: He's like, he's like <laughs> Prince Philip with no social awareness, if that is at all believable. Uh, that
15: us be fair, who, who doesn't are Zara on the ass?
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, he, yeah, he was absolutely in love with himself. But I love that. I love his five-year-old reaction to the realisation that he wasn't as awesome as he thought he was, which was just to run away and hide. Uh, let's go to Lockie first, because he's World War One and likes diplomacy and political
2: shit. Go on. Uh, this is history's biggest twats we're doing today, is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, yeah, no no further kind of expansion from me. I, I, I think, you know, doing things like um, trying to get himself a, a negotiated entry to Jerusalem through the Jaffa Gate on a white horse so that he can claim some mythological wow. status. Uh, and then they, they actually smash a, an opening in the wall near to the Jaffa Gate um, so they can sort of, say, yeah, you've, you've totally done that, when no, 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 no. Um, points to epic narcissism. I mean, through the the late 19th and early 20th century, there's just a litany of uh, things that he does which puts Britain as it's as the world power in a very difficult position and, and things like, I know you've done a, done a recent podcast on the Second Boer War, which I have listened to, thanks for the shout out. Um <laughs> <laughs> Shout out, Burn, whatever way. Yeah, you want. some of that. Yeah. Um, you know, him him publicly coming out in support of of Paul Kruger um, and and the Boers yeah. was a real oh, oh, Britain yeah. got. This is know, the Britain's Jameson
0: raid, right? Where Kate's granddad got all layers <laughs> and <she's>, yeah, <laughs> he's
2: like, it. "What? No, no." Total connection. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean Britain's diplomatic response to that is, of course, shut the fuck up and get in your box. It's got nothing to do with you. Um, which it sort of needs yeah. to be. But this is this is unnecessary nonsense born out of self importance. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a strong one for self love, whether it's truly the greatest love story in the world. It's,
0: it's the
13: greatest
2: th- love story in Germany. <laughs> oh, it's damning. Apart, from,
0: apart from the German public and <laughs> David Hasselhoff, maybe. Uh, if Hitler's backing away from you uh, yeah, you're a bit too crazy, Simon, you've you've gotta have a second look <laughs> yourself, haven't you?
16: Yeah, I've, um, I've just written down here that it was just so lucky that Germany only had one mental self-obsessed leader in the uh, 20th century. Um, he's, okay, he's, he's bonkers. We'll give him that. But wasn't there, I seem to remember I watched a documentary. I read somewhere that a lot of this was a kind of about the macho-ness of the English royal family and that he had this deep-seated hatred of his grandmother because... No.
0: Yeah,
16: no? Yeah.
0: Right, I'm going to yeah, get back on my royal horse now. All of this, <laughs> this was the damn my <laughs> feel- dog if this is the George V tyrant documentary, that can fuck right off. The problem with Wilhelm and the British Royal Family, he adored Queen Victoria. He literally right. shoehorned mm-hmm. his way into Pride of Place as she was dying and then tried to take over her funeral yeah. arrangements as the oldest grandchild. The issue with him was him and Edward the Seventh. George V just ran away and hid from him and just smiled and waved from a distance. There was no beef between those two, uh, but Edward the Seventh and Willie hated each other and that was where the animosity was
16: so the picture isn't there it's a picture, the picture of kind of three of them all looking the same with beards and navel it's all dressed up of, as sailors
1: yeah that's
0: slightly older so he was never the reason that he wasn't they weren't a clique really but so Right. I'll have to edit myself. Queen Alexandra, <laughs> father of, uh, mother of George V, and Minnie, yeah. mother of Nicholas II, adoring sisters, spent all their holidays together. Not a problem. Willie, slightly older, and also his country had invaded Queen Alexandra and Minnie's country. So the rest of the family were a little bit like mm, to Germany because they buggered up Denmark. So it was more sort of mm. a... a foreign policy thing that had made the family a little bit strange to the point that Willie wasn't invited to uh,
1: Christmas. uh <laughs> yeah.
0: back to back Chris. The last time the three of them were ever in the same place was 1913 at Willie's daughter's wedding. And Nikki and Georgie were having a great time chatting and everything. George didn't even take a, if that had been an official thing, then constitutionally George V would have had to take a, a minister with him. Because he's only a constitutional monarch. He didn't do that. It was a family event. He was not talking policy. They were not doing anything. Didn't stop Wilhelm from obsessing about how they were talking about him from behind his back and listening at keyholes, which sort of backs up everything Chris has said.
16: So, so, so where did this, um, what I don't understand is where did this massive obsession of self-love come from? I mean, his, his country followed him into war. His grandmother loved him. Being um,
0: constantly, constantly told he wasn't good enough. So he was born. By,
10: with, by who? He was Which massively insecure. It was the Everyone. So,
0: well, everyone, but he, the mother kind of, so, so Prince Albert is essentially responsible for Wilhelm II because his brand of parenting was just to bludgeon his children to death with how much of a failure they were. Queen Victoria and, went to even yeah. further and Vicky idolised her father, Prince Albert, and she used this same parenting thing with Wilhelm she spent his entire childhood telling him he wasn't good enough added to the fact that he loved the military wanted to be this soldier couldn't be because he couldn't even cut up his own dinner You're in the pictures that arm is always tucked away to hide the fact it was like a miniature arm Mm. with a, a little hand on the end it was caught when he was she was giving or caught in the womb or when she was giving birth and it was like a. was it botched forceps but anyway, it never grew. It didn't grow properly. Yeah.
1: Right.
13: It was
0: a complication. So physically would never be the specimen that he should be from a PR perspective. And that I mean he put that more on him In than a German emperor than anyone else. It was, uh, and, and, it only, yeah, but
13: he was a he
2: He wasn't a man of immense power, though. I mean, like his constitutional position at the head of what became an extremely powerful country, he was a man of immense power. And I know there's there's a kind of there is a democratic element to Germany at that stage. They did have the Reichstag, they did have elected officials, and they did, you know, as a percentage of population, have more people that could vote than Britain. At that time, however, you haven't been, because it's such a That's young country, they haven't been through that civil war process, they haven't ironed out constitutional normality like, well, what we call normality here in Britain. So, um,
0: in my book, I said that if you use the analogy across the board.
2: Good, uh, good plug, uh, Alex.
0: I know, no, it's not even in print anymore because my publishers <laughs> Uh, so Russia constitutionally was an old man, decrepit, not fit for purpose at this point. Britain yeah. was established a uh, healthy adult compared to the rest of them uh, with established precedents. Germany is a rambunctious teenager. It's only been a country since 1870. There's, he's harking back to the Middle Ages. He's like Henry VIII. Re- re- he's re- like to, Henry VIII yeah, yeah, in charge of... precedents from then. There's no uh, blueprint to tell him how to behave.
16: What I'm going to say is I've always had a little bit of a of a soft spot for Willie.
0: Yeah, I don't hate <laughs> him. I don't. I think yeah. he's hard done by...
10: So I, I, I've always yeah, kind I'll of, felt- of Willie too. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh. Oh. Knew that was coming.
0: He actually he was not the warmonger everyone said he was. There is yeah. I, I've done the stuff at the Royal. Um, Arms, there is yeah. I going to that until right on the like right two days, three days before the war started, he was trying to stop Germany's army from mobilising, but they just, he was basically told, sit down and shut up. And yeah, I was,
16: so I'm going to say, yeah, I've got a soft spot for Willis so but I think it's a, a bit harsh and I'm going to make the joke that he had a, a, a massive penis, but on the other hand, of course, it was tiny. There we go. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right okay well that got quite a long way away from cuddles and stuff thanks very much chris for why not get a go Go oh go on how can i not give you a go when we're talking about willie
9: exactly well all i was gonna say when when chris first started and he mentioned the kaiser i wondered who the the recipient of the love because i thought it might be his mother because he was slightly obsessed with his mum wasn't he and he wrote some slightly questionable letters where he wanted to stroke or lick her arms or things like. yeah
0: yeah but then we've all done that (laughs) <laughs> then booted her out of her home right after his father died. The tra- Germany's tragedy is that his grandfather lived for too long and that his father died three months after coming to the throne because his father, um, Fritz, was progressive, liberal and would have taken Germany in an entirely different direction. But where they hadn't been very mean to him, Willy had gravitated towards his loony grandfather who lived to the age of 500. Um, <laughs> and there was no there no bridge to get him there. So that's Germany's tragedy. is his father's... Oh,
12: I'm not sure that's the most tragic thing in Germany, though.
0: Go on, where All are you right. going? <laughs> well, if, Why if World War I doesn't start, then Hitler never gets angry. That's- you won't he like really when he's like,
9: angry. He was, he was He was quite... Are you, I get what Lockie says about his power... Um, but he was quite a useful idiot for for the others to have around you know he could be manipulated and supporting things and you know he was easily led I think as Chris said he was quite quite capable of changing his political opinions from one extreme to another at the drop of a hat sort of thing. So well, you
0: say this, but then it got so bad because he said, so this this is like, it's always a bad time when you start an- like analysing someone. He was like Trump in the thing that they couldn't shut him up. He wouldn't let his PR people and his constitution people do the writing and do the speeches. He wanted to talk for himself. So his own government was forever trying to distance themselves from the crap that came out of his mouth, uh, which is never a good sign. And we may have seen since 2016 in America, just saying. But before we get drawn into that, uh, let's, should we go back towards some cuddles and some niceness after, uh, that, yeah, best like, yeah, let's go to Charlie. We'll do Charlie and then we'll stop to refill our glasses.
4: Fantastic. Okay. Well, I'm going to bring you a proper romance now. So I want you to imagine a romance so shocking that it was denounced at its inception by the Vatican as erotic vagrancy. No, I'm not talking about Henry VIII and one of his six wives, but instead of Hollywood legend Elizabeth Taylor and one of her seven husbands. Yes, Liz had as many husbands as Snow White had dwarfs. And they're easily remembered through this very catchy rhyme. Divorced, divorced, died. Divorced, divorced, remarried. Divorced, divorced, divorced. (laughs) (laughs) it's catchy you'll remember that forever elizabeth taylor was married to her fourth husband when she met richard burton on the set of cleopatra they had met a decade before but liz was unwilling at the time to become a notch on burton's reportedly very benotched bedpost the year now was 1960 and 20th century fox had blown the budget on the highest production values and most expensive leading lady to date Taylor was the first actress to be paid $1 million, $1 million, for a role. (laughs) Couldn't resist it. The story goes that his hands were shaking on set one day, presumably from drinking, and she made him a cup of coffee. They filmed a scene in which they had to gaze into each other's eyes and then kissed for far longer than was necessary to get the take. He then romantically told his makeup trailer, I've just fucked Elizabeth Taylor in the back of my Cadillac. Cleopatra took two years to shoot and ran so wildly over budget that he pretty much bankrupted Fox. One of the reasons Fox gave for a lackluster financial performance of the completed film was the negative press surrounding the affair between Taylor's Cleopatra and Burton's Mark Antony. Both parties being married, this was double adultery. Not only did the Vatican denounce the couple's behaviour, But Congress lobbied to prevent the couple returning to the U.S. from Italy, where they'd been filming, and photos of them canoodling on a yacht had flooded the press. But it was Liz Taylor, and try as Hollywood may, there was no keeping her from doing exactly whatever she wanted to do. The affair didn't stop. This was more than just another one of Burton's dalliances. Both parties were granted their respective divorces, and Liz Taylor and Richard Burton married on the 15th of March, 1964. They lived a jet set lifestyle and he bought her the biggest diamond ring that I have ever, ever seen. Hint, Chris White. Hint. (laughs) But why am I nominating Liz and Richard as history's greatest romance? Well, it's because we're given a very unique perspective on it in that we can watch it play out. Watch Cleopatra and see the sparks fly between its leads. They're hot. They went on to appear in 10 feature films together and a TV movie. Their marriage was poured over by the press, who fed upon details of their extravagance, their decadence, their infidelities, even suggesting at times that their marriage was open to other sexual participants. Both drank heavily, and this added a volatility to the relationship that is far from admirable or desirable. They loved each other passionately and violently. Their fights were vicious, both emotionally and physically. This may not be the perfect love story, but instead more of a melodramatic romance that could have been written by Hollywood. They starred in a TV movie in 1973 called Divorce His, Divorce Hers, which proved prophetic because they did divorce in 1974. But the battling Burtons could not stay away from each other, and they remarried the following year. He said of her, I might run from her for a thousand years no this is lovely isn't it um and she's still my baby child our love is so furious that we burn each other out the second marriage lasted less than a year they couldn't be married but they had trouble staying away from each other maybe a marriage can survive one egotistical alcoholic actor but certainly not two they appeared on stage together again in 1983 for a revival of Noel Coward's private lives The play's about a divorced couple who are thrown together whilst honeymooning with new partners, so public interest in that was through the roof. The chance to see Burton and Taylor together again, acting out what must surely be their real lives, was just too delicious to resist. However, Liz missed several performances due to ill health, disappointing many theatre goers. The following year, Richard Burton died in his sleep at the age of 58 from a cerebral hemorrhage. Liz didn't attend his funeral in Wales for fear of drawing too much press attention but she did attend his memorial in London and she laid roses on his grave the following Christmas. She said that he had written to her shortly before his death a love letter that she received after he was gone. Years later she told Vogue, I was still madly in love with him the day he died, I think he still loved me too and although she never shared the contents of the letter She was reportedly buried with it when she died in 2011. Like I said, their love story wasn't perfect, but watching the two of them spar on screen as Katrina and Petruchio in The Taming of the Shrew, like Carrie Bradshaw, I got to thinking. None of the great literary romances were perfect. In fact, it's Shakespeare's fiery couples that we assume go off to live happily ever after, think Beatrice and Benedict in Much Ado. Burton, as Petruchio says... I am as peremptory as she is proud-minded and where two raging fires meet together they do consume the thing that feeds their fury. Though little fire grows great with a little wind yet extreme gusts will blow out fire and all. Liz and Richard could not continue to rage yet they never truly burned out and remained together smoldering upon the screen for all time. A love story timeless and troubling.
0: Oh, Well done, Charlie. I'm going to go to Simon first because this is kind of your wheelhouse, isn't it, Simon? Because you do film bits and pieces uh, for media. So what do you think of this one?
16: Um, Yeah, uh, I was obsessed with um, the Taylor Burton uh, thing as a kid. I remember, what had I seen? I was allowed to stay up one night and watch Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Oh, wow. And um I was really young and my mum and dad, I remember my dad saying, oh, you know, they, they were married. They were married in real life. And I was like, this is so raw. And then went back and watched everything about it. And there's something brilliant about this couple who are destined just to tear one another apart. And the fact that they made 10 films together. And also there's loads of interviews on YouTube and them doing TV specials. Well, you're basically allowed to chart the it's it's almost a bit like Charles and Diana where you kind of watch the beginning of the love story and then them sort of not talking to one another to its tragic end so yeah i'm i was a I was obsessed with this when they do the melodrama together when they do um Cleopatra Cleopatra is not a great film
1: yeah I'm but it's um in fact, it
16: could be said to be a terrible film <laughs> <laughs> the fact that they had so much star power. I mean, forget the Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt, forget, forget any of those modern day, forget Woody Allen and um, Sue New, which I don't know if anybody's done, but it's, they were kind of this powerhouse couple. And I think there was something about the rags to riches story as well about everyone thought of Liz Taylor as American, because she was British, but uh, uh, Richard Burton was working class Welsh Valleys, who sort of became Hollywood royalty. It's fascinating. The stuff about them is fascinating. And it's all there in their drinking, smoking, lust for one another. They were just a couple who liked to fuck and get fucked up. And yeah. you can see it all on screen. So it is, yeah, a really good choice, actually. And when you look at them through the lens of Cleopatra, so one could argue straight Hollywood before the swinging sixties had really come in. And then their kind of debauched lifestyle. I've I've got some friends who go on holiday a lot to Beirut and they say there's all these bars and clubs in Beirut. And it was a real destination place for uh, people to go in the seven, in the late seventies and eighties. And they're there in every club and everything else. They kind of epitomized in their own way, this sexual liberation going through from the sixties through the seventies. And, um, yeah, fascinating, absolutely fascinating couple and, and yeah, just basically the manifestation of pure lust on screen. Um, good choice. I like that one.
4: Thank you. I think that when, when they met on Cleopatra, those two things happening together, them meeting and that film both were the two nails in the coffin of the studio system. So she shouldn't have been able to behave like she behaved, but yeah, yeah. I think by that time having, we forget that she was a child star. And that her first marriage was arranged by the studios to transition her from child star to sex symbol. They thought, well, people aren't going to be able to look at the girl in Lassie and think, wow, she's fit. So we need her to get married. So they arranged that for her. And you know, she's had four marriages by now. She meets this guy. And she's just like, do you know what? I'm done. And it completely destroyed all the power that Hollywood had over its stars as well as their um, financial control. So she was
0: feel as well that Cleopatra film for me is like the last Harry Potter book where J.K. Rowling had got so big that no one wanted to tell her it just needed to be edited to half the <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly the same with Cleopatra no one wanted to tell Elizabeth Taylor dude this is five hours long no one gives a fuck uh Lockie what about you
2: yeah, so um, uh, I'm much less qualified than Simon to talk about these two, um, so I'm just going to confine myself to saying that double adultery sounds like moving on to the next stage of a game show, um, <laughs> where you've, done, you've had the first round, and now it's time for double adultery! Ooh. Your new audience
0: claps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. rampant lust, that's your life, isn't it?
9: Only on Saturday afternoons these days, not as young as I used to be. Um I prepared for the wrong one. I thought Elizabeth Taylor came up and I spent all afternoon looking at her marriage to Larry Fortensky. That was a fucking one. <laughs> <way. laughs> um, nothing really. Why? Why were, Why were they denounced by the Vatican? I mean, presumably they hadn't done anything that was that bad compared to what other people did at the time
4: it was it was flagrant double adultery i think that was the thing it was the, the photographs in the press of two married people together on a yacht in various you know tame states of undress but clearly clearly together it was that was just too much and they they're famous and to make an example of them that hang on just because liz taylor and richard burton are doing this doesn't mean you can so yeah they were and if you
16: think about it there's there hasn't been an equivalent you know, you n- you never saw pictures of Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt uh, making out. Even, I mean, look how everybody was scandalised by Dominic West and Lily James just kind yeah. of a few weeks ago. The double adul- adultery thing was massive. And, you know, Spence Tracy and Catherine Hepburn having that love affair all along, but he wouldn't divorce his wife because he was Catholic. Yeah. Whereas these two just went church, Catholics, studios.
10: Fucker, <laughs> we like
1: fucking <laughs> let's I have
0: actually, a drink <laughs> this might be my favorite one so far i really like this one right guys uh, a few people have got empty glasses let's have it because we are running quite behind we've got a few left to go let's quickly do a drinks break and then we can come back yeah. I need gin. <laughs> okay we are back having just spent the break talking about master and commander uh and now we are gonna move on to <sighs> trying to think whether i want cynicism or actually i think we've already exhausted all of the uh the amazing um actual love stories oh no we haven't do you know what I want to do I want to go to Kate Spooner next because because we are British and we have this horrific tendency to be westernized and everything Kate decided not to do this and specifically went looking elsewhere on the planet didn't you Kate
6: I did yeah tell us where did you go so I uh, I went to India um well sort of India. Um, As we have heard, there are many, many great love stories. Think Aladdin and Jasmine, Belle and the Beast, Buffy and Angel, Damon (laughs) and Elena, Harvey, Donna, Rachel and Ross, Monica and Chandler, Tarzan, Jane, Shrek, Fiona, Donkey and Dragon. And sure, they endured blistering winds and scorching deserts, climbed to the highest bloody room of the tallest bloody tower, which is certainly admirable. Risking life imprisonment or giving up your immortality for your true love is devotion for sure, but it wasn't enough for me. I wanted more. So for my greatest love story ever, I chose the story of Pradyumna and Charlotte. Pradyumna Kumar Mahanandia was born an untouchable, a member of the very lowest social class of the Indian hierarchy. Born into abject poverty, the untouchables or Dalits are consigned to the dirtiest occupations and prevented access to basic human rights, forbidden entry to temples, schools and even water wells. In some areas, the mere sight of these people is considered to be polluting. They're often segregated outside of towns or forced into a nocturnal existence. These people are deemed so worthless that they they do not even figure in the Hindu caste system. They are so very far below it. Mahanandia was born in one of these remote segregated villages. He attended school but had to listen to lessons from outside. He was not allowed to play with or even touch the other children and wasn't allowed anywhere near lunchtimes. A prophecy given to Mahanandia by the village astrologer when he was a child said he would not have an arranged marriage like many people in India, but rather his wife would be a musician born under the sign of the ox in a faraway land. Mahanandia never forgot this prophecy. Despite the social stigmas and restrictions of his upbringing and education, Mahanandia did well at school and managed to get a scholarship to study at the College of Art in Delhi. The promised scholarship wasn't paid, though meaning he was forced to sleep rough. He worked as a street artist and became increasingly well-known for his portraits. The story of how he became famous has several versions. Essentially, one version involves him waving a portrait in front of a white woman waiting in the back of a car, whom he thought might be the foreign wife in the prophecy, but was actually Valentina Tereshkova. The other version says she and Indira Gandhi were in Connaught place, and he managed to get to the front of the crowd and show them a portrait. Either way, he wound up painting both of them and became something of a celebrity almost overnight. Around the same time, a young Swedish woman, Charlotte von Shedvin, was travelling in India. She saw Mahanandia painting near the Holy Fountain in Connaught Place and decided to have her portrait done. He describes their meeting. It was December 17th, 1975. A woman with long, beautiful blonde hair and blue eyes approached me. It was evening. When she appeared before my easel, I felt as though I didn't have any weight. Words are not accurate enough to express such a feeling. Remembering the prophecy given him as a child, while he worked, he asked Charlotte some questions about her home and life. Convinced his outspokenness would prompt her to go to the police, but unable to stop himself, he told her they were destined to meet, that it was written in the heavens, and he invited her to have tea. Believing him to be a good, honest person, she agreed, They met a few times, quickly becoming very fond of each other. She agreed to meet his family, so they went to his home village for a few days. By this time, they were very much in love, so were married in a traditional tribal ceremony. After a few weeks, Charlotte had to return home to Sweden. She offered to pay for Mahanandia's ticket, but he was too proud to accept and promised he would make the money on his own. They kept in touch by letter, and more than a year passed, but still, He hadn't saved enough for the fare to Sweden. Mahanandi recalls, I thought it was time to take the first step, so I sold everything I owned and bought an old bicycle. He set off to cycle 6,000 miles across Pakistan, Afghanistan, through Iran, then Turkey, to Bulgaria and Yugoslavia, Germany to Austria and Denmark, eventually reaching Sweden. He explained that he slept under the stars and how his art saved him. He drew portraits of people who paid with food or money He said, I also made lots of hippie friends who fed me, instructed me and guided me. I was not alone. I never met any person whom I disliked. It was a different time, a different world of love and peace and of course freedom. The biggest obstacle was my own thoughts, my doubts. Mahanandia finally arrived to Sweden almost five months later, but immigration refused to let him into the country. The authorities didn't believe his story. They thought it was just too extraordinary. He convinced them to call Charlotte. After speaking to her, they understood and let him through. The shock would have been huge. Coming from such an impoverished background in India into a wealthy city in Northern Europe, the differences were marked, and many. The culture, language, religion, food, the whole way of life. Not only did he have to find his place in this new and wildly different society, but he also had to convince Charlotte's wealthy parents that he was an eligible match. It might sound tough. But this is a man who'd just travelled 6,000 miles on a bicycle. After a time, Charlotte's parents could see how devoted the two were and decided to disregard the practice that Swedish upper classes didn't marry people with dark skin. Charlotte and Pradyumna were married, officially, under Swedish law this time. 45 years later, Pradyumna Kuma Mahanandia, or PK, and Charlotte are still happily married. They live in Sweden and have two grown children. Umna has become a well-known artist and is a cultural ambassador. When asked about his arduous journey and if he ever felt tired, he said, yes, very often my legs would hurt, but the excitement of meeting Charlotte kept me going. But he doesn't understand why people think it was a big deal to cycle to Europe. I did what I had to do. I had no money, but I had to meet her. I was cycling for love, but never loved cycling. It's simple. This story, brings a whole new meaning to the expression going the extra mile and puts every knight in shining armour and romantic hero to shame. He really did endure blistering winds and scorching deserts. Plus, I believe a love story should have a happy ending. Otherwise, it's not a true love story, but rather a tragedy. So that's why, for me, PK and Charlotte is the greatest love story ever.
0: Well done, Kate. I, do you know oh, what? That even penetrated mine and possibly even Zach's total system <laughs> because he didn't look like he was going to be sick at all. Although Kim oh. put in the chat, Forrest Chump. <laughs> <laughs> it shows you what you're up against. Uh, I
6: was also sleeping, I have to admit, I, I kind of vaguely remembered that Holmes is maybe a bit of a cycling person and I think there's a few cycling people among us so I was hoping that the bike involvement might help.
0: Uh, no, because that's Johnny and he's not judging tonight. I don't think Holmes would be seen dead on a bike, would you I
1: <laughs>
12: wow. Clive's, Clive's a big cyclist. Yeah. Clive, uh, Clive gets on his Lycra and tries to kill all the drivers. Clive's a mammal.
6: Oh, I remembered wrongly. I was hoping that there was more than one cyclist. I was hoping. But if it helped, that that was I hate the
0: bastards and I didn't hold it against him because it was such a nice story.
6: Yeah, I like, hate cyclists too.
9: <laughs> Holmes. <laughs> i mean i i did i did almost tear up at one point with that, but I was thinking about the state of his ass after cycling six thousand miles to be <laughs> honest. it's it's a great it's a great story is it true entirely true the way that you told it
6: completely hundred percent yeah it, a lot of it was in his own words yeah
9: okay no i mean yeah i mean it's an incredible commitment, and it's great that they're they're all still together now, all still alive
6: yep. yes he's seventy one I think so
0: Holmes. If you hadn't have met Diane at uni in Bournemouth, would you have cycled 6,000 miles?
9: Uh, It depends what's at the end of it, really, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) In case I find myself back on the market, I don't want to commit absolutely to cycling 6,000 miles for anyone here and now.
0: (laughs) Oh, and hilariously, Diane does listen to this podcast. Uh, Lockie, would you cycle 6,000 miles for Becky? (laughs) <laughs> he doesn't
2: listen to this podcast yeah no I, I, I cycle anyway um so yeah what's what's six um, so thousand
6: miles judge.
2: <laughs> I, I like the story i think it's good i think it's sound is there any information like is it set in literature at all is it is it written up as a, as they a memoir are
6: talking about making it into a film um i think covid kind of slowed things down um but their children who are now adult um they were looking at doing it and they've decided that they don't want to kind of sell the rights. They're gonna, they're gonna do it, the, like have quite a large input themselves. So they're writing the script and stuff, I believe, for a film.
2: It must be amazing for their children that their parents have such a story about how their mm. parents got together. It's gotta to be stunning, isn't it?
6: Yeah, it's incredible, right?
0: <laughs> uh, Charlie oh says, I feel sorry for Charlotte when her lover arrived. No bouncy fun for weeks with balls
4: that sore. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's not getting any love, are you? You'd be pleased to see him, but no. Nah. Diamond. <laughs> yeah, you but therapist?
6: love isn't all about sex, okay? Oh,
4: They're no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I thought that was really romantic. <laughs> I was just being silly and rude. I, yeah, Their I
6: love lasted a lifetime. They could wait a couple of weeks for his balls to heal.
0: <laughs> yeah, Kit has said. You know, your dad cycled six thousand miles to take your mum up the bike path.
1: Oh dear! <laughs> oh, oh dear! Oh dear! Oh, dear.
16: Um, well, traditionally, as as far as I know it, that most men uh, tend to walk five hundred miles and then at a push, five hundred more. So this is obviously um, he's really, really. It's a, it's a lovely story. It's a really lovely story. I'm kind of fascinated by the untouchable cast as well. About how I kind of had a quick look as you were talking about it, and he said he used to go to school and they used to throw rocks at him because he was yeah. Why did he go?
10: Why did he go to school? Well, he he
6: he (laughs) went to school and they um he the school that he went to was a school with a roof but no walls, so he was made to sit like outside essentially so that he could listen to the lessons but he couldn't basically the the untouchables are so considered to be dirty um they have jobs for, like disposing of dead cattle which in India is not you know, you just don't go anywhere. The cattle are, are very precious, aren't they? Um, or the, or uh, dealing with human feces and things like this, dealing with... So they have really the dirtiest jobs, and they're considered to be very dirty, polluting people. And if they even come near the rest of the society, they are polluted, and they have to go through these... Um, Different things that they have to do to cleanse themselves, different rituals to cleanse themselves. So they really are segregated. I mean, it's, it's as bad or maybe worse. And this isn't a debate that we should get into, but it's as bad or maybe worse than South Africa, you know, with the, the segregation yeah. there with the apartheid. It's, it's, and it's still a problem today.
16: Yeah. So it's, um, so that bit of it is fascinating. And then also, it's fascinating that I didn't realise that up until 1979 in Sweden, you weren't allowed to marry anybody with dark skin and that they actually had to change the law so that they could get married as well.
6: As far as I'm aware, it wasn't a law, but I might oh. be wrong on that. But it was certainly wasn't the done thing.
16: I think it's a law for... Because she's a minor royal, isn't she? She's like a, a Beatrice or a Eugenie or... She
6: is or, very or wealthy, noble, pred- Yeah. Yeah, she is a very wealthy, noble woman. So yes, yeah. I mean, it may have been a law. I didn't catch up on the word law, just that it wasn't the done thing.
16: Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, an amazing, an amazing story that is kind of crying out for, uh, some dramatization with, uh, Dev Patel and Rosamund Pike. I, that's what yeah. I'm seeing. Um, <laughs> that's,
6: that's who they're casting. Yeah. Dev Patel is, 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 uh, on the, the list. Yeah. He's, he's who they're casting. Yeah, absolutely. Um,
0: uh, You'd and, have had the and, idea first, Simon. You could have been rich. Yeah, Jesus.
16: Um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a travelogue, uh, cross what's it called? Star cross Lovers. Um, it's got everything. It's a, yeah, it's a nice, nice story. I like that. I like that as a story. Thank Thanks. you.
0: Okay, let's move on to. Let's move on to James, He was having an existential crisis mid afternoon about whether or not his choice was going to offend Marcus.
12: I'm easily yeah. offended, um, because I was referred to as woke this week because I defended women in the front line of the army. That was the first time for me. You're the most unwoke person I know. I know, but those people could seriously just go fuck off. They don't think women should be in a foxhole. Aww. <laughs>
8: oh. Oh, yeah. What's all
9: the name so, of your
14: local, Marcus? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was a bit of an exist, exist, uh, I can't pronounce things today. It was a bit of a crisis there, because I didn't want to offend anyone as such, and it was a bit of a dark story. However, I've switched to one where it was a, effectively a love for music and one another. I've gone for R- uh, Richard Wagner. Uh, Cosima von Bülow and also Hans von Bülow, because he does play a role in this. It is effectively two people's loves for Wagner and his music, but also a whole messy love story. So these three people met while they were working on Wagner's opera, Tristan and Isolde. That pronunciation is probably terrible, but oh well, at this point you've learned I'm a Brummy, My pronunciations are terrible on everything. They met him twice in 1857 and 1858. Both loved his music so much and I think von Buehler was a composer slash conductor in his own right and Cosima was a pianist for him and she also did some work. Uh, in, by 1862, the relationship already had two children, but she lost family members and was alone for long periods. Uh, Wagner's first marriage at this point was effectively loveless, and he had extramarital affairs before, but many failures. In October 1862, they shared conducting duties at a concert in Leipzig. And Wagner records that during a rehearsal, I felt utterly transported by the sight of Cosima. She appeared to me as if stepping from another world. Their affair slash relationship began on 28th of November, 1863, when he visited Berlin. While the husband was away at a concert, they took a long cab ride home and declared their feelings for one another with lots of tears and sobs. Wagner later writing, we sealed our confession to belong to each other alone. By 1864, he had a powerful patron in King Ludwig II of Bavaria, who paid off the debts gave him a generous annual stipend, gave him a lakeside retreat and a grand house in music, and at his instigation, von Bülow was accepted a post in Ludwig's, as Ludwig's royal pianist. He and Cassima moved to Munich and took a house conveniently close to Wagner's so that she could technically work as his secretary. However, by 1864, she'd spent more than a week with him alone at Lake Strandberg, before von Bülow joined them on the 7th of July. According to Wagner's housekeeper, Anna Mirazek, it was easy to tell that something was going on between Frau Cosima and Richard Wagner. She said that later in the visit, von Bülow found his wife in Wagner's bedroom, but nevertheless made no demands for an explanation, either from Wagner or from his wife. Nine months after this, she gave birth to a daughter called Isolde, Such was von Bülow's devotion to Wagner. He registered the child as his own legitimate child of himself and his wife and raised her, with Wagner even attending the baptism. In 1866, he arrived in Geneva and also his wife died, where N. Cosima went to join him. They travelled together to Lucerne, where they found a large lakeside house, the Villa Dribbschen, Wagner made immediate arrangements to rent the house at the King's expense. By the 15th of April he was installed there and he invited the von Bülow's and the children to stay with him. By now von Bülow understood his wife's relationship with Wagner and still loved them both. He wrote to a friend that since February 1865 I was in absolutely no doubt about the extremely peculiar nature of the situation. Wagner loved Cosima so much he was anxious to avoid associating her with a public sandal. So much so that he deceived his patron, King Ludwig of Bavaria, into issuing a statement in June 1866, which declared the unbroken sanctity of the von Bülow's marriage, and promised retribution for those daring to suggest otherwise. So he really deceived someone high up. Their second daughter, Ava, was born in 1867, and... By this time, von Bülow was still retaining his devotion to Wagner's music. He'd been appointed the music director of the Munich Hoffoper and threw himself into the preparations for the premiere of Die von Nürnberg, which took place on 21st of June, 1868. Shortly afterwards, Cosima rejoined Wagner at Trebchen and he had to explain to the king she could not bear the insults that she was continually subjected to in Munich and wished to escape from the world. By October 1868, she finally asked her husband for a divorce, which he would not initially agree to. And but by 1869, he did give permission after the birth of the third child, saying that, "You have preferred to consecrate the treasures of your heart and mind to a higher being. Far from censuring you for this step, I approve it." So he still loved Wagner, still loved the music, still loved, now, what was his ex-wife. The divorce was finalised in 18th of July 1870, sanctioned by the Berlin Court. Wagner and Cosima were later married on 25th August 1870 in a Protestant church, and her father, who was a minister by this point, only learned of the marriage in the newspapers. On her birthday, Christmas 1870, Wagner brought in his orchestra, and where they performed to her, waking her with the sound of music, a symphonic birthday greeting. R had set up his orchestra on the stairs and thus consecrating our trip Shen forever. This was the first performance of the music that became later known as the Siegfried Ideal after their son. They made their own theatre together in Bayreuth. after issues with King Ludwig, who was obviously a bit pissed that, Wagner had lied to him and forced him to do a statement saying the sanctity was unbroken. It was finally completed in 1875. During this period, she admitted to her father that she intended to convert to Protestantism. Her motive may have been more the desire to maintain solidarity and love for her husband rather than religious conviction. She remained a Protestant Catholic until her dying day. On the 31st October 1872, she received her first Protestant sacrament alongside Wagner, a deeply moving occasion. What a lovely thing religion is. What other power could produce such feelings? On a return from a tour to the UK, they began work on his final stage work, Parsifal, I believe it's pronounced, a project that would occupy him for the most of the next five years. And Wagner said such was her influence that he asserted that he would not have written another note had she not been there. So that's how much he loved her as well. On Wagner's death, she sat by the body for more than 24 hours, refusing all refreshment or respite. During the embalming process, which isn't pretty, by the way, she sat with the body as often as possible, much to the dismay of her children. She also asked her daughter to cut her hair, which was then sewn into a cushion and placed on his chest. When he was buried, she remained in the house during the ceremony because she couldn't bear to be there. But according to her daughter, Daniela, she then went to the grave and for a long time lay down on the coffin before her son Siegfried went to fetch her. She went into seclusion and mourning for many months, barely seeing her children and communication, mainly through notes. Among the many messages, Hans von Bülow telegrammed her saying, Sister, it is necessary to live because he still loved her. He loved the music, but he was saying to her she needed to live. It wasn't a perfect marriage. There were extramarital affairs known about um, by her on Wagner's part. However, she still loved him. He still loved her. And it seems to have been more a uh, sort of side thing. Unfortunately, there is a dark side to this love story. And it is that they were both very anti-Semitic from mainly their upbringings, but they seem to have brought out the worst in each other.
11: <laughs> oh God, you can't just
14: chuck that on the end.
0: I, 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 I'm trying to... I'm trying to <laughs> cut they cut were both anti-Semitic
14: <laughs> assholes. The, the end. It seems... It was, <laughs> you got one your um, head,
0: names, <laughs> up.
8: Case. I
14: was cutting the judges off before someone brought it up. Unfortunately, it had to be mentioned, because it did seem to... Be a part of their love story, which is vile. But
0: oh man, just eventually. quit while you're ahead. Stop now, <laughs> stop. You're out of time anyway. Oh, I love it. I love it. Uh, Greatest love story ever between two <laughs> total arseholes Yeah. Okay. Which one of you was laughing the least? That like the judges took care
1: of it. Oh.
0: Holmes, Holmes, you seem relatively sober. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even
9: even until the last bit, I don't think James's delivery was really capturing the torrid nature of the affair that went on to be honest. it felt a little bit like sitting in a finance presentation um, <laughs> I mean, what was quite interesting was that cosima she was uh, the daughter of franz list list yes she? i'm pronouncing this um you, you said something and then i tried to google it but first of all i ended up on her Wikipedia page, but in Spanish, which didn't help. And then I was on the Wikipedia page of someone else with her name, but somebody, an American who was born in 1957. So I didn't catch a lot of it, to be honest.
0: Yeah, but it could have had something to do with James's German pronunciation because Chris looked a little bit like, like a little bit of him died every time James had a go at something. Yeah. I'm
14: sorry, Chris, but <laughs> I did say...
0: Simon. To be fair, I
14: was just trying to focus on my notes and read my notes, so nobody had to get completely smashed off drinking.
0: Oh, yes, because we, we have a new drinking game. Uh, every time James says his catchphrase, which is, wait, what? You get to drink. Every time he loses his place in his notes, you get to drink. And every time he mentions some random American team sport that no one knows anything about, <laughs> you know, that's why Beth's glass is empty. <laughs> I, got I got
1: massively excited
16: um uh, as did some other people i thought that it, this was going to be the love story of um uh class from class from Bühler, you know as in the reversal of fortune the alan dershowitz case that um i think won jeremy irons is oscar that that one and so sort of suddenly going back into this um uh, yeah, yeah i mean the, the trouble with this love story is that these are two deeply horrible people <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's and like Casey <laughs> Hopkins running off with Trump and then trying to tell the <laughs> Drake's Trump
1: story the And I
16: and I love the I love the comment. The, the marriage wasn't without its problems. They were both deeply anti-Semitic and had affairs.
1: Yeah.
14: So kind of <laughs> but it's, it's it was one of those where it was like, do I mention the Mary Shelley story, which was dark in itself? Do I mention Bolivar and his mistress and unfortunately what happened to her? I was like. Kind of, no, but then I was like, this one, it's dark, but it's, they're devoted to each other in love. And I was like,
16: not, mm-hmm. not that devoted. Cause you can kind of see that um, um, Emma Hamilton didn't, she was, she was devoted to Nelson and Nelson to her. And th- as far as we know, not a lot of, uh, I would need to check that, uh, I guess with Kate, but not a lot of extramarital affairs going on between those two. They were kind of having their affair, but devoted to one another. Whereas this, uh,
12: you're going to say anti-Semitism.
14: Yeah. yeah. As, far as, as, sure, as far as as far as I can tell, she was devoted to him, definitely. Yeah. Um. Even though she was having an extramarital affair with her husband, and her husband knew, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. Is yeah. yeah. having like, an
5: <laughs> extramarital affair with her husband? Oh, I think. No, no, heard. no.
14: Sorry. No, sorry. That was my pronunciation bit. So, yeah. her husband knew about her affair with Wagner.
16: But she had oh, affairs no. when she
14: was with Wagner. No. As well. No. Okay. He supposedly had maybe one, maybe two okay. that she I mean, knew I mean, about.
9: To be fair, having Googled them, I can see uh, her husband looked like Richard Stilgo, whereas yeah. Wagner looks quite cool. So I can see there was some attraction there.
14: Yeah, yeah and it seems Wagner. he looked Wagner as well, just because of the music and that he even allowed this He'd,
0: I just, I, I do have to say, James, as well. That I think it was Dorman that pointed out straight away that you don't want to be talking about people in Munich loving Wagner because it leads you down, down another road in the nineteen forties that we perhaps, yeah, a road, road I off. don't
14: want
16: to touch. I'm, 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 I'm going, I'm going to mull this one over. But sadly, write cunts next to their names. A U N T V. That's fair. That's
12: fair. Honest, I wrote that
2: on my notes as well. It's like, A-U-N-T-Z, like A U N T V, the footballer. Yeah. That...
0: Um, uh, Lucky, anything to
2: add? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like maybe doing a pronunciation guide. I feel like we've covered the history. so You probably um, have the uh,
0: best the best German out of anyone in this. Uh,
2: I, yeah. I, it, it, pronouncing Bayreuth uh, like it's Beirut might confuse a little bit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was
0: like, when well, have they ended up in the Lebanon? I wonder why they were in <laughs>
2: Beirut <Bayreuth> as
1: well.
2: Sir, il faut vivre... Um, rather than whatever the hell it was you said. Um, yes, I, d- I don't know. That's, that, that'll do for now, I think. But, uh... <laughs> yeah,
14: I need to pronounce my pronunciations, but oh well.
11: Alina, <clears throat> I you do that just so I took a bite of my food. Yeah, always. because <laughs> I'd be like, freeze <laughs> your mind. Get out of my head, you're in my head too often. I don't like this.
1: <laughs>
11: <laughs> Go on. Anyway. Moving on, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like you to cast your minds back to the 1950s, a time of the Suez Crisis, Cuban Revolution, lots of hurricanes and shit, (laughs) attempted assassination of Harry Truman, polio vaccination was created. Did you get this list (laughs) off of Wikipedia? (laughs) (laughs) Funny enough, I actually fucking did. Notable
2: (laughs) events of the 1950s, here we go.
11: Don't create, don't correct me. I think it's the polio vaccine. I checked Wikipedia. Anyway, going back. Time of Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra, golden age of TV, Koga Chanel, and the Olympics were held in Helsinki. This is the love story of a lady called Edith and a gentleman called Frank. Edith was a budding author doing her research She really wanted to get out there and get the whole world to look at her and to look at this fantastic book that she was writing. Frank, Frank was a locksmith. He was wanting to get out of a menial job and write a book. But he read this article, which was published by Edith, and he wrote her a letter. He asked to meet her at the Imperial War Museum, where they had coffee. And cake. Don't forget the cake. They hit it off right at that moment. That was it for Edith and Frank. Edith helped Frank with his writing skills. And they had this phenomenal connection. They knew what the other person was thinking. Unfortunately, they lost contact. But, ladies and gentlemen, this is not the end. They reconnected during a summer festival where they spent lots of time together and they even ended up staying the night together in the same house. But in different rooms, of course. We're going to get proper romantic here. Again, they lost contact and unfortunately, well, fortunately, this is not the end. Then there appeared a letter, one here, one there, and then a disaster struck, and they were forced back together. They sat down and decided that they're going to write a book together. It went so well. They worked so hard, and yet they were then divided once more but once they met that one day that they met they ran into each other's arms as they saw each other from across the train station it was it was incredible they hugged each other so hard and it was just it was the most romantic thing you could ever think of incredibly passionate <laughs> I'm running
0: are you done <laughs> I, can't, I can't do it anymore I'm really sorry Just because everybody else in the room is on the joke clearly she is Frank and I am Edith and I clocked this when she started oh. mentioning Frank and the IWM oh my <laughs> god I just say
1: that uh,
13: someone who's Tried to pull someone at the IWM. It is not a good place to beat women.
0: I'm grooming with This is the Again, story. The I
11: tried not to laugh through this. I think the I don't... is COVID, and the book is the fucking podcast, isn't it? I was gonna, th- I was gonna say at the end, I was gonna say, Alex, do you know the name of this book? And then that would have been. <laughs> I I knew you Sorry. We'll get to the end of that. All right. So ready. my epic love story <laughs> is me and Alex. Please,
16: basically, you basically wrong. haven't done your homework. And <laughs> that,
11: that Actually, you don't know how hard I've worked on this. <laughs> worked Ironically, on this that going
0: to the Wikipedia and getting the list of events in the 1950s is probably the hardest she's ever worked on one of these things. <laughs> 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 yes, Simon, Alina is that kid. Uh, any more comments or questions? No, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, Holmes.
9: I, I did think I couldn't see where it was going, but I knew it was basically bollocks. So I stopped taking notes, to be honest. So,
11: <laughs> what, you didn't like my names?
9: No. Well, I, got, I wrote them down. I got to I got to the summer festival bit, and then I thought, fuck this. Basically,
11: <laughs> is it because you couldn't Google it?
9: No, I, I, I couldn't even. I couldn't even bother to Google it.
0: Lockie is making another drink, which is not a good sign.
2: Yeah, that's true. Um, so I made more notes than Holmes. Basically, I was trying to kind of dialogue the whole thing so that I could try and make some sense of it to no avail whatsoever. Um, uh, I don't know. Is yours a particularly passionate love that you're describing here?
11: Yes.
0: What uh, other kind of love is it?
2: From I don't know.
0: Considering she's like, it's, it gets quite angry at times, I guess.
2: Like an old see, married he, couple. You seem to be mostly tired. I don't know. (laughs)
0: That's what marriage is like, you you He's basically
9: basically saying, Alina, that you want Alex to get on a bike and go to Poland.
11: Oh, my God. (laughs) Yes. Alex, get your ass. Come on, hurry
0: up. She She did tell Twitter a few weeks ago that she (laughs) went, went, because apparently there was a whole Twitter thing about how I was a lesbian um, and when I said I wasn't. She pretended she didn't know that and that she'd been trying to groom me for the whole existence of History <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Anyway. Okay, she not tell that story. It's still more believable than some of the shit I've seen on telly. Definitely the love triangle in Pearl Harbour, but let's not even go there. Um, <clears throat> I had that immortal love. I didn't even know I was pregnant till the day you got back. Wow. That must have taken a whole five minutes. Right, okay. On that note, let's... Oh, who should we go to next? Can't look around the room and see who hasn't been yet. <clears throat> Let's go to Clive because I'm dying to see what he does this week, and also, as well, because Clive, I just want to thank you because it kept me going through uh, through James's butchering of the German language. There's a little light show you've got going in the background. We've not got a porno den, you've got a disco going this week. <laughs> Are you trying to impress Simon? Is that why? <laughs>
8: <laughs> no, no, I'm just trying to kind of disguise the fact the rest of my study is a complete mess,
0: okay. <laughs> Clive, what is the greatest love story ever told? Okay,
8: there, there are quite literally billions of love stories in the world today and even more in history. So finding one standout one is going to be a difficult task. I know that I, if I asked my wife, she would very quickly point to one story above all others, But modesty in the sense of privacy means I will not recount our personal tale, involving as it does my one and only trip to tooting. She's <laughs> also discounted marriages that are arranged for political or commercial expediency so have struck out any royal marriage I've also struck out those that have however passionate for a while founded in divorce and acrimony as my wife says after 34 and a half years of marriage a true love story must be one of enduring and developing love I love, like
0: way, I love the way I love the that way that's one of your voices you use every week, and that's your impression of your wife
8: as well. <laughs> well, you've got to try, you gotta try. The story I've chosen is a story of two people whose love was both instant and lasting, whose love defied convention, but despite that remained together through changing times, and a couple who have given us evidence, an enduring legacy of their feeling for each other. Alice B. Toklas was 30 years old when she met 33-year-old Gertrude Stein on 8 September 1907. It was her first day in Paris, and she immediately fell for the older woman. She said later that she recognised her genius before Gertrude Stein even spoke. They were together until Gertrude Stein's death in 1946. Alex Toklas said of that first meeting, It was Gertrude Stein who held my complete attention, as she did for all the many years I knew her. I knew her until her death and all these empty ones since then. She was a golden brown presence burned by the Tuscan sun and with a golden glint of her in her warm brown hair. She was dressed in a warm brown corduroy suit. She wore a large round coral brooch. And when she talked very little or laughed a good deal, I thought her voice came from this brooch. It was unlike anyone else's voice, deep, full, velvety, like a great contraltoes, like two voices. You can see why I'm not going to be very good on Stein's voice. It's fascinating that description of Stein's clothing, even down to the brooch, matches the very clothes she wore in Picasso's portrait of her, painted the year before. Anyway, the first meeting was followed shortly by a walk, and more walks and the days spent together in Gertrude Stein's apartment. Alice would go round at about noon when Gertrude Stein was rising. Stein would eat breakfast while told... Talk- Tockless had her lunch. The relationship blossomed, but it was frustrated by the presence of Alice's housemate, Harriet Levy, who had come over from the States with her. Attempts were made to persuade Harriet to travel or go away for the summer, but to no avail until 1910. Three years of frustration. As soon as Levy left, Gertrude Stein booted her brother out of her apartment and Alice B. Tokers moved in. They lived as a married couple, With Gertrude Stein referring to Alice as her wife, and Alice certainly took on the role of an early 20th century wife. She acted as housekeeper and secretary while Gertrude Stein wrote and held her salons. It must be said that Alice was no shrinking violet. She was not a passive partner in the relationship. They established their own roles in the relationship and lived them. They were not roles ordained by society, but roles of choice. They wrote and kept hundreds of love notes and letters to each other, Wifey, hubby, baby, and Mr. and Mrs. Cuddlewuddle were among the gentle affections they used. I love this bit. Stein, known as one of the most quotable and sophisticated literary figures of the 20th century, the woman who said, a rose is a rose is a rose, and there is no there there, (laughs) and she's writing notes from Mr. Cuddlewuddle to Mrs. Cuddlewuddle. They were friends with Matisse, Cezanne, and Picasso and collected the art of these young and other aspiring artists. People would come to their apartment to view art, talk and drink. Guests would be thrown out at 11 o'clock and Stein would sit down and write until dawn. The formalisation of their relationship led to a change in Gertrude Stein's style of writing and she wrote, albeit in a disguised manner, about their love and relationship. She was one of the first people ever to use the word gay in print, particularly to describe female homosexuals. During the First World War, my obligatory First World War reference for Holmes, they left Paris for York, but returned soon, and having acquired a Ford motor car, volunteered to drive supplies to hospitals. During the interwar years, Gertrude Stein's reputation and influence grew, with Alice always by her side. They associated with every passing intellectual, from Alfred Whitehead to Ernest Hemingway, although Hemingway was eventually barred as t- Tockless worried that he was trying to seduce Stein. The list is long: Picasso, Scott Fitzgerald, Sinclair Lewis, Ezra Pound, Gavin Williamson, etc., etc., etc. They were nece- they were a necessary stop on the writers and artists' grand tour of their day. In 1933, Gertrude Stein published her book, The Autobiography of Alice B. Toklas, which propelled Alice into the limelight and greater celebrity. In 1934, they embarked on a lecture tour of the U.S., their first visit since they had both moved to Paris in the early 1900s and the illuminated sign in Times Square proclaimed their arrival. The Second World War led them to abandon Paris for the Vichy South, where they avoided arrest as both enemy aliens and Jews, it is suggested, by virtue of their relationship with Bernard Fay, Stein's French translator, who became a senior official in Pétain's government. In 1940, Gertrude Stein had translated speeches of Pétain into English for an American audience. They were never published. They returned to Paris in the autumn of 1944, just after its liberation. Gertrude Stein suffered from stomach cancer and was operated on unsuccessfully. She came out of a deep coma to ask Alice Toklas, Alice, Alice, what is the answer? Her companion replied, there's no answer. Gertrude Stein continued, well, then, what is the question? And fell back dead. It was only after Gertrude Stein's death that Alice herself began to write. She wrote a cookbook, which is more of amusing in on her life with Gertrude Stein, as well as being famous for containing a recipe for hash brownies. Shortly before her death, she wrote her memoirs, What is Remembered, which ended abruptly with Stein's death. She converted to Catholicism in 1957 and lived the rest of her life in France. Alice Toklas died at the age of 90 in 1967 and is buried alongside Gertrude Stein in Paris. The extent of their love and the closeness of their relationship is evidenced in peculiar, in particular and unique ways that Gertrude Stein wrote the autobiography of Alice B. Toclas, which starts with their first meeting and that Alice B. Toclas's own memoirs in turn end precisely with the death of Gertrude Stein, saw so that they saw their lives as one and that which came before or after was not worthy of note. How prettily we swim, not in water, not on land, but in love. Kiss my lips, she did. Kiss my lips again, she did. Kiss my lips over and over and over again, she did. Romance is everything. I must say that the only three times in my life have I met a genius, and each time a bell within me rang and I was not mistaken. Three geniuses of whom I wish to speak are Gertrude Stein, Pablo Picasso, and Alfred Whitehead. This has been a most wonderful evening. Gertrude has said things tonight. It will take her ten years to understand. Their love was strong. It was born within and survived contemporary morality. It is recorded in over 300 love letters and notes, which are all preserved, as well as in their writings. But more than that, their love created a path for others to follow. This, as an example, their love has fostered the love of millions who have come after them.
0: Well done, Clive. That was beautifully done. And I d- I'm sorry, that was my fault, everyone. He messaged me yesterday Said I'm supposed to be working and I've spent all afternoon trying to perfect an American accent and I just can't do it. Uh, so I said, just make them cockneys. It'll be funny. <laughs> um, and it was, and as it's now been pointed out, and I can't see anything else. Norman says you sound exactly like Parker from Thunderbirds.
8: <laughs> <laughs> oh me, lady. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Simon, what did you make of that one? Clive was so chuffed with himself. He was—he uh, messaged me saying, "I'm so woke. You wait till you see what I've chosen."
16: <laughs> well, f- firstly, I mean, I consider myself uh, pretty well read. I helped put all these books on the shelves when we moved in. But I'd never, I'd never heard of, uh, and Stein. And so as you were talking, I was just having a quick look thinking, is there anything here, any song, any movie or anything that's going to suddenly trigger something and I'll, I'll realize that I've heard of them through something else. But no, not at all. So it's a fascinating, a fascinating story. I was going to say to you, with every other, um, with every other love story we've heard tonight, it's kind of been contextualized in the times that they were in and what social pressures or what historical pressures they faced. Um, I wasn't really sure apart from obviously Stein, I think uh, he said, had she escaped Nazi Germany or she had helped, she had had help
8: from the Vichy government and sort of escaping. They were living in Vichy, they were living in Vichy France, but or despite the fact that they were both, Jewish, and they were both Americans, LME aliens, they were never arrested, which was quite remarkable.
16: Yeah, so that's the kind of interesting kernel that I, uh, I want to get at. And also, there doesn't seem to be much attrition around the love story. They basically they met and they what, what what was what, what but were that they escaping
8: the people running from or but, but that no that 's the beauty of the whole well they both yeah. escaped from America because in both cases, largely because they realized that they were gay, um, Gertrude Stein came out very early on i mean it was an unheard of thing for people to come out as gay in those days. Alice left America when she realized she really wasn 't going to get married and wanted to do something else um so they were, t- to that extent, running from the- both their families and from their backgrounds, and they set upon a very bohemian scene in Paris, hanging out with, you know, Picasso was 23 or 24 when he painted Gertrude Stein's portrait, which is one of his possibly 10 greatest works. But they very, they were very central to that whole scene of those young artists and the Cubist and subsequent movements in Paris.
16: So do you, do you think you like them because they embody a romantic, Ideal that is also the romanticism of what they were doing and being the kind of bohemians of the day. Does that kind of add to the but, story?
8: But also because it's a kind of solid growing love story. It's not just a kind of a, a match that lights up in the flame and burns your fingers after a while. This is something that grew stronger and stronger with time.
16: Thank you very much. No further questions, Your Honor. Your witness,
0: Holmes. <laughs>
9: Uh, yeah, that was great, club. I, I did wake up about three days ago saying, "I wonder what a former US French naturalized Jewish lesbian sounds like." And you, you've answered <laughs> <laughs> it.
8: I've, I've been struggling with it all week. I can tell you.
9: Yeah, yeah. yeah. it was good. I, I mean, I guess when when they moved to France, I guess uh, France was more tolerant of their relationship, so they could be more open and out about it.
8: I, I think, particularly in kind of. The Montmartre and around there in Paris at that time, with everyone being an artist, garrets, and all the rest of it, they could probably get away with more than they could in San Francisco, where they both came from.
9: And then I, I noticed from a quick Google that, as well, you mentioned, that she translated some of Petain's speeches, which weren't published. But I think after the war, she actually publicly expressed admiration for him. Was there any sort of comeback to that?
8: There, I mean, Gertrude Stein herself, her politics were a little bit kind of, they're a bit of a mystery. It doesn't, it's not quite clear whether she was being sarcastic at times or whether she did have admiration for some elements of kind of don't, the don't nasty side of this, French politics. Don't do
0: that. Um, yeah, you're going to do a James ending. I was
8: going to say, yeah, I was going to do a James. That's, but, a, that's a euphemism. That James James there's, a, there's a lot to point to the fact that 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 she wasn't of that ilk, and certainly. She was very. They were very much adopted by kind of the hippie movement and things in the 60s. Lockie,
1: okay.
0: Any questions?
2: Hey, no. I just kind of had a little thought along the way that uh, actually being um, gay and Jewish in Vichy France might, you know, not draw that much attention to them. In the sense that you know, if they're if they're Jewish and breeding, uh, then then perhaps the Nazis would take more of an interest. So just from a, a cold practical Nazi sense, so they they. Almost be safe um, in mm. in Vichy France. Um, I like the story. I think it's it's quite a clean romanticism. I think it's a, a, a nice. Um, I don't mean nice in a kind of in any way a kind of diminutive or patronising sort of way. I think it's rather than um, some of the others where we've we've seen kind of. <laughs> Quite broken people come together fiercely and then drift apart and come together again or, or, or whatever. I, I think it's a, it's a steady love that builds.
8: I think, it's a, I think it, it's a, there's it's a nice wh- element to it. It's a wholesome story, but there was yeah. kind of a, a, a flash. They fell in love at first sight, but then it was, it became a very wholesome relationship, which is nice. Because that's what we all strive for.
0: Indeed. Um, God help us, Beth's eating another ice lolly and Marcus has turned his camera off Uh, and poor (laughs) Kate, I have to Kate Jameson, God love you, you just turned your camera off to go and get a port because you didn't want everyone to see your joggers and you have no idea that Kit's been sitting here this whole time stark bollock naked below the waist (laughs) 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 Prove it (laughs) Prove it
1: Has Bethany got a fab?
0: (laughs) (laughs) This turned into many filthy memes last week, because Mark. look at him screenshotting already. Uh, Dorman has just asked in the chat, why doth love always return to the Nazis? Well, Dorman, it just does, which is why we're going to go to Boney next. Go on, Matt, tell us why.
15: You can't have a good love story without Nazis, death, fire, and an abortive trip to the cinema. So let's start our story in the summer of 1938. And if I'm a bit slurred, it's because I've made these Negronis very between. <laughs> <team it. laughs> you actually were on your second or third when we
0: started. So we third it's, it's,
15: it's been a week. Let's put it. Like anyway,
0: I think it's showing a
16: bit. Well, there was a leg. Did anyone else see that naked leg?
15: Okay.
0: Right, right. As you were. <laughs> oh, what kit? <laughs>
15: nope. The
0: camera's tilted at that angle for a reason, Simon.
15: This is why this goes out on radio. Um, anyway, so it's the summer of 1938. Um, the Nazis are not having a particularly good summer in sports. They have invited the English football team over. They're in the Olympic Stadium in Berlin. The British very kindly or the English very kindly give a Nazi salute and promptly win 6-3. It's the 15th of June and the Eiffel Race has been cancelled and thank you James for murdering German early so I shall not be doing any German names for the length of this. The Eiffel race has been cancelled so the boss of BMW has decided to throw a bit of a party. An Englishman gets his invitation late so he enters the soiree with the criminal sin of being the only man not in evening dress. His name was Richard Seaman Beatty better known to the world and history as Dick Seaman, racing driver extraordinaire, <laughs> um, and probably the greatest English racing driver that you've never heard of. Basically, he was so good that he was signed by Mercedes. Now, in the 30s, um, Mercedes and also Union basically got a blank check from Hitler to go and win Grand Prix. Um, and imagine Formula One now, as this was back in the day, And two teams show up that are five seconds a lap quicker than everybody else. For a professional driver like Dick, the only place to go was to Germany. Um, And he managed to get himself a seat at Mercedes. And he'd done quite well in his first season. But this summer of 1938, the world's falling apart a bit. He's not been driving too often um, because the politics of the teams was very much aligned with what Dr. Goebbels wanted. And then there was this party. BMW had just started producing knockoff Pratt & Whitney engines that would go on to become the BMW 801 and the FW 190, which would bring in the early introduction of the Hawker Typhoon, which I have to squeeze in in all my chats. And uh, (laughs) across the crowded um, dance floor, the eyes meet of two young people. Dick was 25, and across the room he sees the 18-year-old daughter of Mr. Pop, Erica. By all intents and purposes, it was love at first sight. They spent the rest of the evening dancing and the evening disappeared in a haze. Um, Prince Chula of Siam recorded it in his biography of of Dick saying it was a magical evening um, in a chapter that he just calls marriage. Because tonight's story is the amazing story of Dick and Erica and what happened over 18 short months. You see, the summer of 1938, a lot's happening. Um, Max Schmeling's about to go to New York and get his ass handed to him by Joe Lewis. But at the Nuremberg Ring in the summer of 1938, it is all staged to be an all-German affair. Until Mercedes worked very hard to set their lead driver on fire during a pit stop. And the outcome of that is is that an Englishman in a German car is 20 seconds ahead of everybody else in the race. The propagandists are trying to get the teams to change the order, but Dick consents his first Grand Prix win and being only the second Englishman ever to win a Grand Prix. He crosses the line, he wins, and he is famously photographed with a massive Nazi wreath around him giving a rather half-hearted salute. That is how he's remembered. But what happens afterwards is equally fascinating. This becomes a whirlwind romance with the daughter of a March Violet. They basically forget everything that's going on around them. They they travel, they ski. As Dick's doing his promotional bits and pieces for, for Mercedes, It's he's basically the new star in, in Nazi Germany. But for, for him, the only thing that matters is racing. And Erica, and increasingly, it is Erica. They travel to London, where he introduces his his new girlfriend to his mother, Lillian, who was once described as being of the very stiffest corset, and she immediately takes a dislike to that German. It would cause the mother and son to fall out, and they would never speak after the marriage. But things go continue on as the Munich crisis starts. It's also the British Grand Prix. So as Dick and Erica are doing the soirees and the salons of London society, the Mercedes team are very quietly trying to pack everything up because the last time a war started where they had Grand Prix cars left in London, uh, Rolls-Royce nicked one and turned their racing car into an aero engine called the Eagle. Um, So there you go. Everything good comes from Germany. But the Donington Grand Prix happens. Very famously, Tazio Nuvolari hits a stag, which the, which the uh, promoters then stuff for him and he takes it home. Dick doesn't finish, but it ends up being he returns back to Germany and this whirlwind romance continues. And that December, they marry in Kensington at a small reception to which the great and good of British racing show up. And everything seems to be going wonderfully. They return to, to Germany where they honeymoon, they basically travel around the alps looking for snow they ski the photographs of them are of a beautiful young couple who are just enjoying life um, and it's it is wonderful i'm just going to hold up which is going to be terrible for radio but that's them on their honeymoon they are a gorgeous young couple and this is the tragedy of the story as they are just trying to live their life the the sportsman and the um, the young model, they basically are caught up in the politics of the time. Dick's job as an Englishman in a German team is very much causing political problems back home. Even though their marriage is celebrated in Motorsport magazine, um, his win carries the headline in papers, hail Mercedes, hail Seaman. Things are difficult. But racing comes first. As the 1939 season begins, And they're trying to get things sorted. They've got a beautiful house in the Bavarian Alps. They're spending time on their yacht. And as the summer starts rolling round, things are starting to change. They head to Belgium for the Grand Prix. It's the middle of June 1939. They are still the talk of society. They are inseparable, and they have been since they've married. The old um, spa Frankenshop circuit is about 14 miles of high-speed corners. Dick is there in the latest car by Rudy Uhlenhaut, ironically an English-born German, possibly one of the greatest engineers of his time, who would then spend the rest of the war under suspicion because he'd been born in London and not designing engines, which probably could have helped Daimler. The picture posted sent a photographer, and the morning of the Grand Prix, he was allowed access to take pictures of Dick getting ready for the race. It was raining, he was known for being great in the rain, as was his team leader, Rudy Cracciola. The very first Reagan master, um, the next would be Schumacher. There's a p- couple pictures taken that day which you should really look up. One is of, of Dick's Seaman shaving in the morning. Um, you can see the two beds in the room pushed together in the background. And then a bit later on, he's pictured at breakfast, not touching his food. Erica le- leaning across and lighting his cigarette because it would be the last breakfast they have together. On lap 17, the rain has come down. Dick peels into the pits, and he's in the lead once again. He's going to win his second Grand Prix. His car is refueled, it's filled to the brim, and he races off. As he comes up to the source hairpin, something goes wrong. His car skids off the track, and he hits a tree. He is knocked out, his arm is broken, and the car collapses around him. It's fully fueled and it roars into flames. He's trapped and it takes minutes to get him out. The race continues. Dick is taken to hospital where he is given morphine, bandaged up, and his burns cover his entire body. His teammate Rudy Caracciola and his wife Alice bring out Erica into see him. He's conscious. He's been talking. He sees his wife. He holds her hand and he apologises. We will not be able to go to the pictures later, my darling. I'm sorry. Eight hours after this crash, he's died. Erica is left with a dead husband who had not come into his inheritance, which ranged in the millions of pounds. She has no income. War is about to come. And she sends a letter to their friend, George Monkhouse, which implies that there is a plan that they had. As soon as she possibly can, she uses her British nationality, which she got on marriage and leaves Germany. She would never, she wouldn't return for another 14 years. She would stay with friends of Dick's. Dick's mother, Lillian, would never, would never speak to her and she would have to live on the rest of her life with this love affair that she never had. How do, how do we know it meant so much to her? Well, she would marry another two times, finally to a, an American newspaper publisher called Kurt Schwab, where they would retire to Florida as everybody does just before they die. Um, But they found that she always wore the engagement ring that Dick had given her back in the summer of 1938. No great love story ever ends happily ever after. As much as we would love it too, and we want the books, we want pride and prejudice to be pushed aside and life to go on happily. Um, and zombies to show up at some point. Um, We have to live in love on our own terms. We're never going to know what Dick and Erica's life was like. Richard Williams tried very well in his his new biography, but what life was behind those closed doors we cannot see. We only have the images of a very sheltered, very spoiled couple in the middle of a storm that was brewing that would send the world back into madness. But they look genuinely happy. They look very very much in love brief intense happy that's possibly the greatest love story you can have
0: you did a proper radio presenter thing there Simon is he not like a radio pro oh, you're on mute. The, the,
15: the radio pros are yeah. on mute yeah. <laughs>
16: <laughs> sorry I was going yeah no very very smooth I'm just surprised he didn't go and now the Lebanon by Human League <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: or go but they were both horribly anti-semitic um indeed they were covid deniers <laughs> so who, they're ra- they're who murdered backwards. puppies
16: yeah so uh first thing first matt don't ever give advice again to look up shaves dick semen in google whilst uh, uh, uh if if you want proof of just how lovely this is the pictures I saw were far from lovely, and i don 't think told a love story
15: at all. Um, that said momentary love stories, maybe. <laughs> that said, um, really difficult
16: to feel for these for these couple. Um, he was basically a rich aristocrat who um, Kind of got seduced by uh, he he got he he flirted with old Adolf, didn't he? And got seduced by the way of life. Just a, a cursory look at his his letters and things, and he was really kind of out for himself. And she, you know, the daughter of wasn't it the the guy who owned BMW? She was she was related to the BMW family. So they're just basically. Two rich people swanning around. They were sort of a little bit like poster children for the for the for the Nazi party because he was a bit of a what's the word? A bit of an oddity in the fact that he was a a Brit who was driving for a German a German team. Um, I don't doubt though that the 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 fact that her mother in law wouldn't speak to her and. Her husband died early. That bit is really tragic and awful in the fact that she had to come to London and all the rest of it. Um, And I was strangely moved by that. So, um, yeah, I didn't really, didn't really like him, didn't really like her until he died, and then it became kind of quite (laughs) romantic for
1: me. So I don't know what that says.
15: (laughs) Well, you you do, you you do have to remember that any racing driver worth their salt will race for the devil if he gives him a fast car.
1: Yeah, it's true.
15: Uh, yeah, even even, even now. Um, yeah, and the, and the devil's returning next year in the shape of Fernando Alonso. Yes, there we go. We'll squeeze that in.
4: <laughs> Lucky.
15: Um. Yeah. No. I, I like Simon. I, I found these
2: two a bit difficult to like. Um. I think, and also there, there's, it seemed like a way for a aero engine enthusiast to crowbar in the names of aero engines as well which the <laughs> fact
0: that he could still pronounce them all after that much <laughs>
15: That's That's there's, been awesome a lot, that, there's been a lot of gin and campari and vermouth swirling around my body <laughs> this evening.
0: look at still going <laughs>
2: On a slightly more philosophical point of view, I, I, I contend that a love story can end happily. I don't think it needs to end up with uh, your car being wrapped around a tree and dying in agony after after being heavily burned. But um, I,
15: my my wife's out of earshot, hence hence that line.
9: Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I I thought it was quite an interesting story. I think. It kind of fell down in that, Matt, you did a really good job telling us about the Formula One Formula One around the time of the Nazis, but not possibly enough about um, history's greatest love story. That, so the the, the relationship between, the, between them sort of passed me by a little bit when I was listening to the rest of your quite interesting facts about how it was at the time. Also, it didn't help that I had one of the worst hangers, hangovers I've ever had at Donington Motor Race Track, which I spent five minutes having flashbacks to that, which pushed me off a little bit.
1: I think
0: that was possibly more about uh, Matt's love affair with aeroplane engines than it was about the unfortunately named Dick Seaman and his missus. Uh, but thank you very much, Matt. I didn't I just didn't find him difficult to like. I'm just generally bitter about all couples. Uh, right, we've got four to go. Um, I'm
15: supposed to be doing my thing now, or not?
0: Yeah, go
17: for it.
15: Am I doing my thing? Yeah. We, we don't want to see your thing, though. Do
17: it. All right.
10: When it comes Anything to love out. stories, everyone's just focusing on one couple, which is boring. There is only one love story that matters. It is the first love story. It is the biggest, the brashest, and the bold. It is the love story. other love stories quote as a shorthand for love. love. It is the story of the Trojan War. So I'm going to come out and say right away the big problem with this one, mythology or history? Well, it doesn't bloody matter because it is story. We have very good evidence Troy existed. It's going to go all the way back to the bronze, and you're going to listen to me talk about Greek myths. And all good Greek myths start with Zeus. trying to stick his cock somewhere. It doesn't belong. So one day, Zeus is hanging around as a swan because, you know, japes. And he decides to use his sexy bird form to seduce a woman called Leda. Now, Leda and Swan Zeus have an egg together, and from the egg emerges a beautiful baby girl, Helen. When she's seven years old, she is abducted by Theseus, the guy from Minus 4, who, it turns out, is a girl and won't marry her. She's rescued, but this is just the start of Helen basically telling them to get knotted. When she's of age, she is famed as the most beautiful woman in the world. She is Beyonce levels of hot. He's sex on legs. And she has more suitors than she can handle. Every king of Greece wants to marry her. Uh, On the advice of Odysseus, her dad has made all of the suitors... Oh, God, is everything just gone?
0: No, we've
10: got you. Thank goodness for that. Everyone just sort of suddenly vanished. Never mind. Now, on the advice of Odysseus, uh, her dad makes all the suitors swear that whoever Helen picks, they would not defend Helen, but they would defend Helen's marriage. And that is important. So let's zoom over to Troy. King Priam and Queen Hecuba have a son, Paris. Uh, Shortly before he's born, his mum has a crazy dream where she shits fire. And everyone assumes that this means Paris is going to destroy Troy. Hecuba tries to knife the little dude. Priam spares him, gives him to a shepherd, tells the shepherd to kill the boy. Shepherd leaves him to die. Paris is suckled by a she-bear. When the shepherd comes back back to check on him, the kid's still alive. And he decides to raise him as his own. Fast forward a few years, Paris is young and super hot. So hot that a nymph, Ioni, marries him. Meanwhile, Mount Olympus. Wedding's going on. Eris, the goddess of strife, is so pissed she isn't invited, she lobs an apple into the wedding and says, this is for the fairest. Three goddesses, Ahera, Athena and Aphrodite, argue the apple is clearly for them. Sick of these vain bitches, Zeus decides to opt out of picking and tells Paris, the shepherd boy, to do it. Hera offers him Europe and Asia, Athena offers to make him an all-powerful warrior, and Aphrodite just whips her jugs out, does a sexy little dance, and offers him the hottest woman on earth, Helen. Paris, being a randy teenager, decides to pick the sexy times and chooses Aphrodite. Shortly after, Paris is found by the Trojans, reclaims his position as prince, and dumps Ione. She's still hot for him, though, and she says that if he ever gets shanked, to come back because she can heal anything. Anyway... Paris sends off to Greece with, uh, on behalf of Troy to meet King Menelaus of Sparta, and Menelaus just happens to be the guy that married Helen. Paris falls head over heels for Helen, and either through Aphrodite's help or the love of goat musk, Helen thinks Paris is Bay. Paris and Helen run. off together. Syria lobe, Menelaus invokes that oath about defending the marriage. Helen has become the face that launched a thousand ships and the Trojan War has begun. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole Trojan War here. It's a cast of thousands. It is so epic. The story is actually where we get the word epic from. We have tons of lovers in there. We have Achilles and Patroclus. We have Odysseus and Penelope. Troilus and Cressida. We've got Cassandra, Hector. We've got Agamemnon and Ajax. There are so many stories in the Iliad alone that a warrior called Diomedes fights and defeats two gods one-on-one, kicks both of their asses, and he is still completely unknown by most people but we only have it because Paris and Helen are desperately in love. Now, Paris eventually gets involved in all the fighting, and his most famous feat is slaying Achilles, who he shoots in, as everyone knows, the heel. With a little bit of help from Apollo, uh, he does this, but shortly after, Paris gets in the way of an arrow too, shot by everyone's, again, completely forgotten and unknown hero, uh, Philotitties. And yes, it sounds like boobs. Anyway... Helen is love-struck, and she drags Paris off to Ione and says, look, you remember you said you'd save him from any wound, even though he dumped you? Well, here he is. And Ione's response is, ha ha, bitch, I lied. Fuck you, and fuck your little manhole here. And she doesn't help, and Paris dies. Now, after Paris is gone, Helen basically wants out of Troy. She's forced to marry Paris's brother, but when the Trojan horse rocks up, she's the only person in the city who knows exactly what is going on. Either she does a sexy torch dance to single the men to come out of a horse and attack, or basically she does this weird stand-up routine where she impersonates all of their wives and mocks them for having tiny penises. Either version you believe, she ends up heading up to her bedchamber to get some sleep for the night while the rest of the city burns. Now, unsurprisingly, Menelaus is super pissed about the whole starting a decade long war thing and wants to kill his adulterous wife. During the looting of Troy, he bursts into a bedchamber, ready to cut a bitch. And Helen does exactly what she does best. She drops her robes and stands naked in front of him. And she is still so crazy hot that Menelaus is like, you know what? Never mind. All marriages have issues. Lol, japes. Let's just go home. And Helen and Menelaus go back and they live happily ever after in Sparta. As they leave, Electra, the daughter of Agamemnon, not the Marvel superhero, has turned up to, to Troy for some reason. She watches and screams, Alas for my troubles, can there be that her beauty has blotted their swords? Well, yes, Electra, it can, because Helen of Troy has the greatest love story
1: in history.
0: Well done, Kit, boom, mic drop. Um once again, more cock and inappropriate. <laughs> Crap than anyone else brings to the table. You are the boss. Uh, Simon, you look a little bit shell-shocked.
16: Uh, yeah. So the, the, I've not been treated to the Iliad, uh, kit style before. And so I'm just kind of trying to decipher the slightly mean girl's talk along with, uh, the history lesson bit and everything else. Um, so first things first, have you seen the film? Have you seen the movie Troy? Uh, I have you seen
10: know. The, Brad, the Brad Pitt thing, yeah.
0: Oh, I've never been so relieved to see anyone die in a film in all my life when Orlando Bloom is lining up that arrow. I'm just like, just pull it, do it, do it, do it. I can't stand anymore.
16: Well, one of my favourite things in that is that uh Achilles and uh, Pat- pa- Pat- Patroclus. Patroc- yeah, Patroc- Garrett yeah.
0: Headland, who is yeah. so fit but not in that film.
16: They are, they're lovers, aren't they, in the yeah. in the Iliad. They're lovers in the Iliad and Sean Bean turns up as Odysseus and uh uh, they're practicing sword fighting Achilles and, uh, his, uh, uh, and his mate. And, uh, Sean Bean goes, hi, and he goes, hi. He goes, oh, this is Patroclus, uh, he's my, uh, cousin. And when he says cousin, it sounds the most gay thing ever. You just know. <laughs> Which I thought was brilliant. Yeah, this is my, um, cousin? Yeah, right, okay. Um, <laughs> It's a great story and I love the way you told it and it is an amazing and it is an amazing story. It is quite funny when you tell it that way that after 10 years she does literally just drop her robe and he goes, "Yeah, yeah, as you said, all marriages have their problem. Why are we here? What are we doing here again? I can't remember. Can we get a room? Can we get a room?
1: Exactly. It's
16: on fire. Troy's on fire. Can we get a room somewhere else?" Um, but I think the greatest love story, and I've thought this ever since I was a kid and was first read all those Greek myths and everything, is um, Odysseus and Penelope. Because just the way that she waits for him and everything else, and you know, and he takes all his time to go back and what he goes through and everything else. And I've always hated Paris, because Paris was the reason that Odysseus was away from Penelope. And I've always fucking hated Helen, because you know what? There's always a girl like Helen, isn't there? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: I'll come. <laughs>
16: Sorry, I've got to mute myself. Sorry, where am I?
1: Um,
0: <laughs> there's so- always a Helen. Look at me without my robe. I can have whatever I want.
16: There's always a fucking Helen. Yeah, yeah. I'll just be friends with you, Simon, says Helen Jenkins. But she doesn't mean that. She's going off in Paris. I mean, if you Georgia.
10: want me to go for the story of Penelope, I can do that.
16: <laughs> um So, yes, yeah, so I uh, loved it and loved your telling of it. Um, but,
0: uh, I think on this one, I'm out. Because Helen's a skank is what you're saying. <laughs> Holmes.
9: I've not got really anything. Uh, Kit, that was great. But I spent half the time, A, just trying to keep up. And then B, in my mind, trying to say what, trying to fix what Kit was saying with the half of the Troy film that I've seen, because I haven't seen it all the way through. And that just me somewhat. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I fell asleep, but I've never gone back,
15: so... Is it bad that I spent most of the Troy movie trying to decide whether I'd launch a thousand ships for Diane Kruger? <laughs> Different movie. Have you heard the measure
12: of uh, a milli Helen, which is like, if if basically launch a thousand ships, what, would launch one ship? Oh, so That's quite sweet.
2: That's yeah. what that's what Winston Churchill did with Clementine, wasn't it? Um it, there was a, the he was playing a how many ships game. Um, but you can do that some other, some, 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 with then. some other ass. and then uh, and then Clementine walked in the room, and it was a thousand right there. Why
0: he
8: Nicely he played.
0: <laughs> no, Dorman, that's not why he invaded Gallipoli. <laughs> Which was
8: really close <laughs> to Troy, Athens. But yeah, <laughs> it is. It, um, in 1976, I was in the Wimpy bar at Swansea Station with a friend, waiting to get the ferry to awesome. Cork. And it was the dullest, most miserable place on earth. And as we left, I cool. went up to the jukebox <laughs> and put in a 50-pence piece and played Telly If a Face Could Launch a Thousand Ships ten times as we walked out. And it was a miserable place as we left it. Half an hour later, it must have been a really bloody miserable place. <laughs> That's my only comment on the Trojan War. Thank you. That's
0: coming from proved somebody who had a public school education probably had it rammed down his throat. Right, um, okay,
2: three more, guys. I, Go on, Lockie. Yeah, no, sorry, I, I just wanted to actually quiz it a little bit. Um, so I'm trying to work out who's in love with who in that story. <laughs> well, basically, everyone's in love with Helen. Uh, Odysseus is in love
10: with Penelope. Uh, Paris is in love with uh, with Helen as well. Uh, all of the I, goddesses yeah. are in love with themselves. is <laughs> in love with Paris, but not really.
0: Oh, man, I love her. She was my favourite character in that. <laughs> like, as you bleed to death in front of me, you cheating bastard!
9: But, but lucky, that was sort of my issue. There's there's not, there's quite a lot of love being spread around, so it must have been quite thin. Therefore, it doesn't exactly fit the brief.
2: Uh, I, I, that's where I am. I think yes. You yeah. said love. You said look, the brief was love story. It wasn't couple. It was the story that spurns from love, and this story starts from love. Yeah, but even that you acknowledge that um Paris was a Randy teenager. I mean like I had a I had a poster of Louise Nerding on my on my wall when I was a a, a kid. Are we are we putting it in that sort of context?
10: Are you saying that if a goddess turned up and you were offered either Europe and Asia to be a mighty warrior or, or, or a chance with Louise, um, you'd have gone I'm for saying, the I'm
2: matters. saying that when I was a teenager in Suffolk, Louise Nerding was a goddess. I, I used to there you work your mum. I'd be always when I was a kid I was told that a swan could break your arm, so I'd be a bit scared of
10: having <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Leader in the Swan is a is a whole nother story and there is a weird fascination particularly with the with Florentine sculptors in sculpting the wonders of Leader in the Swan. Um yeah, it's 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 a it's a thing, Greek myths. What can you do? I guess I guess its safe word would be
2: quack. <laughs> Oh, um, the... Don't swans I mean,
9: make sort of they just make a sort of hissing rasping sound, don't
2: they? Yeah, you know? mute, mute swans do. Hooper swans make a, a, a slightly more vocal honky sort of noise. But, I mean um, this isn't the
10: worst for mm. Zeus. Zeus for one for one of the heroes turns up in the bedchamber as a golden shower. Um, which I'm sure Donald oh. Trump would have loved. <laughs> Some ornamental bathroom fittings she wanted.
1: <laughs>
12: that's dar and that. i and we have that painting at work and every time i hear someone give the talk about this is the golden shower and not realize the connotations <laughs> of that phrase i cringe and die inside
15: okay I can't, I can't believe i'm missing master chef for this
0: <laughs> <laughs> right guys master got...
12: chef
15: has a golden shower
12: it's one of the skills
15: it's one of the skills challenges
0: Right. Okay. Moving on from golden showers, uh, and before everyone noticed that Kate is now deep throating a rocket ice lolly. Uh, yeah, look at Marcus die for a screen. Let's distract you. Marcus.
1: Marcus, do your
0: argument for love stories so Kate can eat her ice lolly in peace.
12: That's never going to happen. No screenshot
0: um, in. Stop it. Turn down.
12: <laughs> okay. Obviously, there are some epic love stories. Some that go as deep as Napoleon Josephine divorce. Napoleon and Marie-Therese left him on an island. But some love stories are more beautiful than that. Some are unrequited love. Better than those involve star-cross lovers like Romeo and Juliet, separated by class, wealth, or what is really deep on the inside. This story goes much deeper than that, and this is on the quintessential love story. It follows a young prince charming, born into a life where work is his sole focus he has no time for love his work has dominated his time until he's met her she was damaged yet still so beautiful and she stole his heart and she just put him in a spin <laughs> more and more of his time was um dedicated to her dedicated to her She heated up his fire to a passion. She dried him out from the inside like nobody else could. He tried to fight it, but her colour catcher swept him off his feet. God, how could she shake her unwavering desire? He had to fix her. He had to replace her. Bosh, she was good. This was, of course, the one, the only, Zach and his washing
0: machine. <laughs> hey. Oh, Zach knew about one line into that, didn't you, Zach?
17: <laughs> you utter bastard. <laughs> Zach,
12: yeah, I didn't, I didn't really have a serious one. Uh, we decided last week because Zach was... I don't remember why he cried off, but we were going to uh, do the washing <laughs> machine. And so, um, yeah, it's a washing machine. Otherwise, I, I would have done something probably just to undermine Napoleon really and be really stereotypical. So it's much more fun to undermine one of my good friends.
0: Brilliant. Uh, Holmes, any questions? You no, know, I, I
9: unfortunately, the, the actor, Jeremy Bullock, who played Boba Fett, has just died and I've got loads of texts because I'm a big Star Wars fan. So Ooh. I'm <laughs> answering those texts so I didn't get the first half, and I, I was slightly panicking that I hadn't written down the name of who Marcus was nominating him, because I thought I'd missed it, but turns out it didn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm slightly regretting not using that one to have a piss as well now, to be honest, as well.
0: <laughs> Lucky.
2: Too brief for yeah. him. Uh, uh, can, we, can we go into more detail about um, Zach's <laughs> relationship with his washing machine, please? No, we that. can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a real love hate. I,
12: I think it's one of those that he's a sub and she's a dom... Uh, there's a lot of tying off and beating each other up. <laughs> Googling mine and and she's she's you don't forever, I was going to
0: say, she's forever flooding all over the floor as well. Oh, oh, God.
2: <laughs> there's, lots of, there's lots of vibrations there as well. Oh, so much.
0: Simon, you probably have many, many questions, but I won't subject you to getting thank involved you. in this. Thank, thank you. <laughs> well, I mean,
12: Apologies, because, uh, Simon, I'm not... I normally bore everyone with Napoleonics, but um, this this had a long time coming. Well, what I could understand is, as you were talking, all I could see was, Zach was just doing this
1: with, with his little finger <laughs> up. And I was thinking, what's going on? What's going on? Who's he relating?
0: What's going on is for the last few months, Zach has been learning what happens when you buy a washing machine that's £200 cheaper than a normal washing machine for a reason. Uh, And it's made his life a misery and he can't escape it because he's been locked down. But let's move on. We've got two more that will probably be marginally more serious than this. Uh, We will come back to Zach. We'll give him some time to recover. Let's go to Dorman. Are you bringing the Irish today?
3: No. I'm not, because uh, I think if I were to go on my Irish heritage, it's just an auto win, so I thought I'd give you guys a chance. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, let's oh, say, like <laughs> Oshin and Tiernanog, Dierman and Gráinne, Dierdra and Nisha, we've got all these amazing stories, even Hollywood recognises how romantic the Irish are. Deep year. Is
0: that what that new Emily Blunt film is? Yeah,
3: <laughs> that recent hate crime, Wild Mountain <laughs> Crime. Quiet. There's a lot of great uh, movies and stories set in Ireland, so I decided to take a step back from that, and I think I'm going to adopt the kit approach here, which is that this isn't necessarily about the greatest love story between two people. I think this debate is more so about the stories which emerge from love. And greatest love doesn't even have to be romantic. Greatest doesn't mean romantic, sappiest or what have you. It's about legacy. It's about impact, geopolitical turmoil. Love doesn't have to be about two people. So my choice is about a young woman faced with a difficult choice that accidentally leads to the rape and pillage of a vast tract of land known as Gaul, all in the name of love. So surely that has a claim on the greatest love story. So my choice this week is Honoria, daughter of the Roman emperor Constantinius, and sister to future emperor Valentinian. perhaps that's how you pronounce that. She was a typical Roman lady in that she was empowered, badass, and able to run rings around her male counterparts. Her early life is fairly dull, and by that I mean we know nothing about it. <laughs> but when she really bursts onto the scene, um, she is in an, She has been told that she is going to be subjected to an arranged marriage on behalf of her brother, and she is being married to a man called Bassus Herculaneus, who by all accounts was a fucking dork. Um, faced with this and deciding that she couldn't live a life so tedious, she contacted a very different man with a very romantic letter, she got in touch with a fellow called Attila the Hun. (laughs) Now, you might be familiar with some of his works, um, flattening most of Eastern Europe at that point. And Attila was very flattered by this declaration of love. Um, She claimed she was besotted with him, impressed with him, wanting to marry him. Attila saw this letter and thought, hell yeah, wrote back to her and said, I accept, but for my dowry, I want half the Western Roman or Empire. Uh, Valencian discovered this, uh, wrote many, many letters to Attila saying, she has no power to do this. I'm absolutely not giving you my empire. Please fuck off. Um, however, this didn't really slide with Attila the Hun, as it turned out. And he sent an envoy back saying, this stands. I want my dowry. And he set about claiming it. So he worked his way through Austria, Germany, the Rhine Valley into Gaul and Basically, this tor- tornado of Roman fuck was only defeated the Battle of the Catalonian Fields where Aishus comes out of retirement for one last grudge match. And it's the only time Attila's ever actually defeated in battle. So thinking, okay, maybe I've gone too far here. He retreats, but then decides, you know what, I'm not done. Takes a left turn or a right turn. Uh, swings down into Italy and starts sacking that instead. Finally, honoria at this stage has gone into hiding realizing the uh, whirlwind of destruction she has evoked upon europe um so attila arrives at the gates of rome and a papal legate or the pope himself and a papal delegation rather come out and basically plead with attila to go away uh he does finally we don't know what the pope said to him but somehow it convinced him to leave attila retreats back gets married to another goth girl dies of a nosebleed on his wedding night but in terms of love impact, I'm fairly sure the deaths of hundreds of thousands, a massive battle, three military campaigns, and the Pope getting involved, that's a pretty good fucking love story.
0: It's just, there's a definitely an oh fuck moment when the reply comes back for him, though, isn't there? Saying, yeah, yeah sure, I'm down with it, but I want all of your land.
3: Like, it's drunk te- drunk texting your ex, but on a, like, on a whole other level. They reply going, I'll see you in f- five. Like, yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, Lockie, any questions about this one?
2: I think it's more than that. I think it's... I, I think it's I'll see you in five, and I'll burn down every building <laughs> between me and you on the way. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Is it, is it love, or is it just incredible violence? <laughs> what's the difference? <laughs>
3: this is Attila the Hunt, to be fair. What's the difference? I mean, if you're going to catfish Attila the horn. You need to accept, expect the consequences, you know. Well, I got it on some wild mountain think time You're
0: open-minded enough, to be honest, Lockie. This is very unwoke of you not entertaining this one, Simon. Are you going to give it more of a
16: chance? Um, yeah, it's an interesting one. This one, I like the scope of it. Really, do like the scope of it. It was actually the um, just a, just a couple of weeks ago where I saw a cartoon on sort of a, a site that I was reading that basically went back further than that and said. I think um, Attila the Hun's father was passed over in some sort of inheritance, Rao Andrew. You might know more than that than me, but his father was supposed to gain an inheritance and because of that, and he didn't get it, he went off and he formed his own little tribe and Attila came from that. And somebody was saying, just because his dad was pissed off all these years ago, this is the outcome of that. So it's interesting hearing this is the outcome of that with the starting point of Attila not feeling that he was getting his dowry.
0: Um, Speaking that, of that, is that not essentially what Prince Harry's done? Except he's just moved to LA. I
3: don't think Attila set up a podcast.
0: He <laughs> <laughs> would have.
16: He would have. Um, that said, uh, that said, there's um, there's a hell of a lot of rape and pillage in this story, but not a lot of love. So it's a difficult one to kind of judge on its merits as. A love story, there's uh, there's ethnic cleansing, genocide, uh, rampant <laughs> slaughter. Alina um, probably loves it.
3: I'm sorry, Wagner.
16: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> would it
3: be better yeah. if I said, oh, and Attila was anti Semitic?
12: <laughs> well, uh, so, um. Attila I, was like an equal opportunities, like mass slaughter, wasn't it? So.
0: Yeah, yeah. he killed everyone.
12: Just <laughs>
15: everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <it's fine. laughs> He's still quite far right, I would say, Attila. Yeah. <laughs>
16: I didn't think I'd be coming on here arguing for the merits of it. <laughs> However, you weird bunch, I'm going to say that that's, there's, there's very little love in that story for me to eke out, but a fantastic story anyway.
0: And very well told. Holmes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean,
9: some people would say that you just prepared the story of Attila the Hun and you're trying to loosely hang it on this thing just to, just to try and just to try and meet the briefest. I wouldn't say that at all, but I was curious, did did she approach him and want to marry him for political reasons, or did she have genuine feelings?
3: She just didn't want to marry the other guy. Um, I don't know if it was like a daddy issue or a brother issues in this case thing, where she just wanted... Who's the exact opposite of this boring person? Oh, yeah, this man who's been raping and pillaging the Eastern Roman Empire. He'll do. And she just sent a letter off to him, hoping for the best. I mean, the letters that she did I mean, send really apparently are very loved sound
9: it. Like love, really. It
0: still sounds more like love than James's story, though.
3: <laughs> well, listen, I said straight away that I was not going to win. I, I I'll, I'll did actually at the 12 o'clock today.
0: said, I'm uh, not going to win this. That's no
15: excuse for that.
0: all right Zach finish us off this has turned into a marathon give us our last love story
17: this week's been an odd one for me because people have been quite tight-lipped about what they're doing so whereas normally I would just blithely steal an idea from someone I couldn't do that I did hear about Kate's doing Nelson but I thought it'd be harsh to steal from the newbie so I've had to think about it myself for once which this is this is uncharted territory for me so I've gone for one that's possibly a little bit kind of sensible, which is never a good thing for down the pub. The problem with trying to find a winning love story is, as we've heard tonight, if you go for full romance, it just sounds like a bad Hollywood cliche and it can't win because this is history hack and you need some debauchery in there. But most of the historical love stories, <laughs> as Lock you a the picture of the washing machine, <laughs> most of the historical love stories, if they aren't cliche, are full of affairs as we've heard and it's hard to be a greatest love story when you're breaking someone's heart in the process by doing the dirty on your other other half so I've resigned myself to abject failure this week and I've gone left field with a different focus on love keep your romance and your messy love triangles keep your sleazy sex stories and your cliche love letters keep your scandalous breakups and tales of unrequited love because I'm going to give you a tale of unconditional love, a love so pure that it transcended death, a love based on a bond so pure that it could only be achieved when lust was out of the the question. I'm talking about the story of Hachiko. Born in November 1923, Hachiko was a dog. Please, no crude comments from Marcus. In 1924, he was brought by, I'm going to ruin the pronunciation here, Haida uh, Bureau Ueno, a professor at, I mean it's almost as bad as James's German. Just call
0: him be. Bob. We're British, what we do.
17: Or Dave.
1: Yeah.
17: <laughs> a professor at Tokyo Imperial University. Hachiko walked with Ueno to the train station every day where his master would board the train to work. Uh, every afternoon Hachiko would return to the station on his own to be there when his master arrived home on the 3pm train. The routine was repeated every day until the 21st of May 1925, when Ueno boarded the train to work for the final time. That day, Ueno died of a brain hemorrhage, dying without ever returning to that train station. Every single day for the next decade, Hachiko returned to the train station without fail and regardless of the weather, hoping to finally find his master had returned. Station staff initially tried to dissuade him from coming back, but in time they and the commuters would bring him food and treats as he sat there in sun, wind or rain, waiting for the impossible. The daily ritual only ended in March 1935 when Hachiko died. He was cremated and his ashes scattered on the grave of his master, reuniting them after a decade apart. The story has been given the Hollywood treatment in a film called Hachi, starring Richard Gere. Hachiko has become legendary, being the ultimate demonstration of loyalty. It's not your traditional love story, no erotic love. This is closer to agape, a kind of selfless love, regardless of changing circumstances. There's no exchange of love letters, no exchange of words even, just actions. And this story is purer because of it. It's unconditional. There's no give and take. Nothing says adoration more than waiting every day of your life for someone to return home and refusing to give up hope and on that basis this is history's greatest love story. Ah oh,
0: right okay so you have you've tapped into that ridiculous britishness where this will make people cry. Uh Simon you knew this as soon as he mentioned the train didn't you?
16: Yeah yeah it's um dogs that if you if you've ever owned a dog i don't know exactly you, you, do you have a dog have you ever had a dog okay
17: no,
16: I don't. <laughs> first, first. <laughs> great idea as puppies and then Mainly fucking annoying and smell and keep the place tight and cost a load of money. I can't think of anything worse than a dog where you're going, oh, what is it, boy? What you want to go out? Oh yeah. You want to go to the station? He's not there. He's, he's dead. He's dead. We're all trying to rebuild our lives <laughs> so and you are a daily reminder that our father stroke husband brother is dead. Can you just get over that? Oh, he's come back in. He's all wet where does he go? He goes to the fucking station. He doesn't realize. I thought these dogs were intelligent. Yeah, but not this one. We've got we've got that dog, the only dog in Japan, doesn't realize his master's dead and won't go over it. And you know, know what? Like,
0: if I could high five you now, dude, because I wasn't going to go down this road. But I fucking hate dogs because one tried to kill me, and I'm I'm fist bumping you from here, dumb ass dog. Yeah, listen, hate the hint.
16: Thick, thick dogs that just don't cut it. I'm, uh,
0: you Ooh. know. Boom. <laughs>
16: yeah, <laughs> boom, boomy. Greyfriars Bobby, I put him in
0: the same. Uh, do you know what? Same, same thing. I bought, I, I, um, I, I took a picture of him and put it on Instagram when I was in Edinburgh and just mocked him for being stupid.
1: <laughs> thought yeah. dogs
0: were supposed to be smarter than cats. My cat would have learned after day two. Yeah, a cat,
17: <laughs> like a cat. Yeah, but your cat doesn't care. Yeah.
0: yeah. He, he did say. <laughs>
16: Piddles, I'm I'm going to station. Do you want to walk walk with me? The cat would go. I'm sorry.
0: Who are you?
4: Yeah. Bring <laughs> dreamies. <laughs> yeah. Bring
2: dreamies.
0: <laughs> Lockie, are you moved by the stupid dog?
2: Uh, yes and no. Um, yes in the sense that it brought some memories back because I did spell a, uh, have a spell living in Japan, um, close to Shibuya station, which is the one in question. And, and uh, there a is a... To, and did a man used to take you there every day? I mean, <laughs> well, no, but still, I'll see you at Hachiko is, is still a, is still a thing because there's the, there's the, the statue of him there and it's a, it's a well-known meeting spot for, for, for people. fucking hundreds of people. Hanging people who around can't this, take no for an answer. But it's so, I mean, it's still a, it's still a, a big deal for Tokyo culture and, and thereby Japanese culture. And I kind of liken it to the, the Japanese soldier on the island in the 1960s or, or whatever who doesn't realize the war's over, you know, it, it, kind of dim but loyal in, in that sort of sense.
0: I'm sure a cat person as well. But also I
9: grew, I grew up dogs for the first 20 years of my life as well. I mean, but surely the answer, the reason that he kept going back to the station is that quite clearly said everyone started to feed him. So <laughs> <laughs> he's not getting food anywhere else. That's why he's, he's going. back. Person,
1: right?
9: <laughs> I mean, I, I, I had a cat, not the current cat, because my current cat, as Alex knows, is far too fucking lazy to do this. But we, I had a cat about 10 years ago that used to follow me to work. So he used to go to the end of the road. And then it's a busy London road then. And I used to be late, so I used to have to bring him back every time. So, you know, cats can do that a little bit. But, yeah, I'm not massively convinced by this.
0: <laughs> yeah we've decided he's just a fat mercenary and <laughs> that he effectively didn't care that his master was dead yeah we have just absolutely and meanly crucified that story right guys we are well over tonight uh, let's quickly while the judges make their decision and quickly uh, whatsapp slash twitter each other or whatever and decide who's won we'll go round the contestants and just see who you would have picked if you couldn't have your own love story Clive what moved you today
8: it's got to be the cycling Indian, doesn't it?
0: For you, yes, because you're
8: a cycling I mean, He only cycled 6,000 miles, which isn't actually that far, but still. <laughs> Excellent. And God. he was a lot younger than I am now, so I'm not that impressed by his uh, cycling prowess, but it was still a bloody good story.
4: <laughs> Charlie. Because I love the film with Vivian Leigh, I'm going for Nelson and Mrs. Hamilton.
0: Good story. Uh, Beth, who's on, so you had one ice lolly, then you saw Kate with a fruit pastel lolly and you actually go and get one. So you're on your second.
12: Can I just point out it's yeah. really creepy that, um, Kate's been screenshotting Beth's ice creams because she's sending me photos on a bit weird about fire.
0: Yeah, no, that's just in the hope it's that not you not put up any of her deep throat in her lolly. It's a female manipulation. These two manipulated you well enough. Uh, in the pub when they slammed a cupcake into your face a few months ago and they're doing it again Marcus. Beth if you can't have Elizabeth and Mr Darcy who would you go for?
5: I think I'd have to go for the cyclist I think you're 6,000 miles like that that oh I felt felt it in my heart so Yeah. yeah definitely
0: I didn't actually do mine in the end because we ran out of time, but I was going to do David Lloyd George and the sound of his own fucking voice. What more proof do you need, right? This pandemic, yeah, what would you have said if some asshole politician had come out and said to you, uh, I'm advocating prohibition and none of you are allowed to drink in the middle of this national crisis? Because that's what he tried to do in World War I because he was a dick. Uh, Matt, if you couldn't have yours.
15: If I'm honest, I'm struggling to remember what they all were now.
0: Um, <laughs> <laughs> I would have my cocktail in my glass because it's lovely. Is that what you're saying?
15: I've, I've had a lovely love affair with these Negronis tonight. They've been, they've been smashing. Um, i to be fair, I'm, I'm going to go Nelson and Lady Hamilton as well because it it is, it is a great story, and let's face it, he gets killed. So he before he became a real bastard in old age and basically cheated on her with another younger model. We never got that. So you know he he died at the right time to leave a fantastic story and be put on the top of a big pillar for pigeons to poo on.
0: <laughs> that now all the wokes want to pull down.
15: Good, but yes, just because they've never read a book.
0: Absolutely, and um, we have a podcast on that. Go back and listen to it, you schmucks, Zach.
17: I think it's gotta be the guy who cycles 6,000 miles. It's the only one that was genuinely based on romance that frankly didn't want to, didn't make me want to hurl. So, involved adultery.
3: I mean, Attila rode 6,000 miles.
17: <laughs> <laughs> yes, but he spent his entire time chopping people's heads off in the process. I'm not we don't know what the sure
3: Indian did.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
17: <laughs> Dude had to eat.
2: Yeah.
0: So you don't know what that Indian did. I'm going to go with Dorman just because he seems so sad and because he doesn't like a bit of Attila the Hun. Uh, Chris? Um,
13: well, I'm, I'm kind of I'm kind of torn because there have been three great st- love, love stories from Germany, which is clearly the apparently the home of love. Um, who knew? <laughs> um, <laughs>
1: um,
13: I, I also, um, I obviously had a really... Bitter year with love, and I'm quite jaded, but I also have a lot of Julia Roberts movies, so I'm, I'm, I'm gonna go with the 6,000 miles because.
0: Even though line. Dorman's pointing <laughs> out that Attila attacked Germany, so Germany's in that story
6: as well.
13: yeah see? Yep, yep, yep. Um, more can Germans, I just say, but we come my off badly in that one, so.
6: Okay, my cyclist rode through
13: Germany. Yep. <laughs> but he went from Germany to Austria, then up to Sweden. Weirdly. Yeah,
6: and he didn't uh, kill
1: anyone. <laughs> in
13: yeah, you I don't know, know that, Kate. That we know
1: about.
6: I'm confident he didn't kill anyone. Any his love in Indians.
8: Kate, on my bike, I have so far killed one cat, one squirrel, and a rabbit. <laughs> so can I suggest
1: you, that you kill that.
8: <laughs> stop with the bike. You must be bloody
2: fast. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
0: Dorman, if you can't have your righteous choice of Attila the Hun as the greatest lover in history. <laughs> I mean,
3: obviously, Attila is the only choice. But if I had to go for one, I'll go for one that's semi-fictional. and go for um, Troy. Because it's just the epic love story, let's be honest. Yeah. I mean, Paris and Helen, even all the subplots that Kate mentioned are all in individually epic, quite literally. So yeah, it's it's got to be Troy.
0: Yeah, but definitely not the film adaptation where it felt like it lasted for 10 years. Uh, no. Kate if you can't have Nelson and Emma I can go for
7: Zach and his washing machine just for the lols
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> <They're laughing>. <laughs> yes <laughs>
4: Marcus is like I feel seen
12: it's for oh me.
1: Marcus so
12: oh, I was, I was going to go for um, Kate and the cyclist until um, Clive reminded us that all cyclists are murdering bastards um, <laughs> And I just remembered how much I dislike London cyclists. So sorry, Clive, you took yourself <laughs> out on that one. Um, and I think it's slightly worse. Cyclists are slightly worse than a till of the hunt. So, um, <laughs> and, and I, I genuinely, Kate puts the most effort in every week, and she beautifully tells a story. And never wins, and very, very well done. But you also started for your own thing. Um, Matt's Nazi engine <laughs> porn wank fest of. Spitfires in Nazis in something. That that was cool. Um,
15: yeah, yeah.
12: Yeah, Matt Matt wins because I know how much he loves engines and um they were Nazis and it sounded a bit like an Indiana Jones spin-off. I liked it.
15: Hooray, this has not been a waste of three hours and twenty minutes. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> uh,
14: it has to be the cyclists. I mean, the amount of effort and it's for truly for romance and that they lived happily ever after that we know of and everything. It just has to be that.
0: I think you're all racist and you're only picking him because he's the ethnic minority and that's why Attila the Hun's getting overlooked. Is that right, Dorman?
3: Well, Attila the Hun came from Asia, so...
1: <laughs> i trying to do you a favour there. Kit, what about you?
3: I feel I mean, shame. <laughs> if I'm honest, I don't really give a shit.
2: Um,
0: <laughs> how long have but, you been awake at this point kit <laughs>
2: we're all deeply um, invested in this kit come on yeah, I've, been inv- I've been awake about 20
10: something uh, too, too long um i'm going to give it to to james and his love of anti-semitism um, <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa.
0: <laughs> please james just say the words wait what stop.
2: say it so we can have a drink <laughs> okay, because of
14: kit, wait, 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 what, 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 and did I say wait, what? It's go on, Beth, just finish
0: saying. that off. Charlie, if we done you? <clears throat> yeah. Has everyone had a go?
11: No. Go on. No. I am going to go for Zach and Hachiko because I know that sort of love between a dog and a human. Because you I, are a no
0: stupid dog. That's why. I
11: don't. Do you know what? I really don't care what people think. That dog has gotten me through some of the hardest times of my life. And I can't, I seriously, I cannot sleep without him. I cannot live without him. You're not talking about the dead Japanese dog, right? You're talking about your stupid dog. I'm talking about my stupid (laughs) dog. Okay, cool. Who is is better than any man because he is there. I can come home and be angry and he's not going to give a shit. He's still going to love me no matter what. Because you feed him. (laughs) <laughs> and hug him. But to be honest, you've got to understand the love between a human and a Staffordshire Bull Terrier is, and English Bull Terrier because we can't leave Lucy out there. She'll kill me if I don't say that. That kind of love is is priceless.
12: Zach could do exactly the same as so his washing machine.
15: If I know it's dogs
12: really get this many
15: votes, <laughs> I would have brought up the Cocker Spaniels named Scotch and Soda, which I left out because I thought it would be a bit too saccharine. But clearly, I, I need to live <laughs> for next time.
0: Clearly, you didn't read this room. Right, judges. Let's put everyone out of their misery. What have you deemed the greatest love story ever told? I, mean, I think
9: we're unanimous, aren't we? So I think, yeah, I, think it, let's, I, think, I think Simon can announce it as he's A, a professional, and B, it's his first <laughs> time. So,
16: uh... Well, firstly, uh, firstly, the the obvious preamble, just to drag it out a little bit longer. Um, thank you very much for inviting me and allowing me to be uh, a guest in this. I've enjoyed it very much. It's been really good fun. And um, yeah, what a what a lovely eclectic bunch you are. Thank you. Um, Right, okay. So this is interesting, isn't it, judges? Because um, we've gone for one that nobody said. So uh, yeah, a bit
0: dormant. I think you might be celebrating a little bit (laughs) prematurely. Oh no, I got
16: this. Yeah, um, (laughs) the one that we that we really really loved. And kind of got us and actually thinking about it more and more, their impact on history and things like that. I think it's still a good choice. I think it's still a good choice. And we went for Taylor Burton.
0: Oh my god! <laughs> That's Genuine. <laughs> Yay! Yes. Oh, poor Clive got all excited there. He was like,
16: due to due to this empty bottle of wine here, I've probably done it the wrong way and I should have done third and second to <laughs> build up the uh to build up the tension. Sorry about that. So now I should tell you what was second, shouldn't I? So not the winner, but almost the winner. You're the you're the Buzz Aldrin today. <laughs> um, now Neil Armstrong is dead. He's first, so that kind of makes it uh, right. Uh, the second, one. Uh, like you lot, we were very very moved um, by a person. Seemed to be a Rafa or Nike ad, and that was the Indian japanese Swedish lady. We were we were touched. <laughs> uh we were touched quite deeply by that i think no
1: yeah
16: no yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. look how touched andy, <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> andy, andy <Lewis. laughs>
16: yeah we were touched yeah
1: oh yeah <laughs> yeah
16: hoo <boo-hoo>, simon <laughs> 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 and number 3 um yeah we went at nautical and it was nelson and lady hamilton we uh loved that love story so yeah
0: Oh, God bless the pair of adulterous buggers. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, again it is iconic, isn't it, that relationship. Uh um, needs a hobby. And you you interestingly went for all of the ones that didn't involve anyone getting murdered as well.
9: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Maybe we're more softy and romantic than we thought we were when we're a, we a soft lunch,
0: you, three. you say that, but Simon's still leaving this massively long four-day chat thinking that we're all certifiable and should be locked
10: up <laughs> how long has this thing gone on for i mean i was supposed to be in bed two hours
3: ago
16: enough for me to gather enough data for the security services you
3: really- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are they gonna let you <laughs> back really in the country 99 <laughs>
0: Enough ruined- for him to go back on Gabby Ross's show this Sunday and go, don't touch this podcast with a podcast. <laughs> <called laughs> I
3: think I've ruined any opportunity of me getting
16: on BBC. Seriously, it is a, it is a, um, um, a retrospective photo about to blow up in our faces. You know, when people distance themselves from Jimmy Savile, that's what this is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and we talk about trying
16: to, trying to blur my, my screen. Seriously
0: oh. done, James? Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, should, should, I, much, should Simon everybody. make a
12: commitment to come back on now and do a history of cinema one? Just we should.
0: We mm. should do another film one and invite Simon back as a judge because oh, I know Charlie would love that too. I would love,
16: we, I would love that. Yes. Thank you. We did
0: greatest war film, didn't we? What other one could we do? We Worst really war film again. <laughs>
16: I actually would like to hear you talk about the worst. The worst is always really funny. Okay, yeah. yeah. Why, why it's yes. got under your skin, and right. why you believe it to be the worst because you, even if you don't do your homework, you can always be emotional about something you hate. Oh, also,
9: so that, also, that also that means Lockie doesn't have to do any new research.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Just> coming back <laughs> with gas right? right? <laughs>
14: Oh, oh it's poor a Set a rule though that none of us can pick the patriot because it's already been mentioned
12: in the podcast. <laughs> oh. yeah. Yeah.
14: Okay, if, what, right. So, at some yes. point in
0: January, we will reconvene for that because we're not fucking going anywhere. I guarantee it. Simon's uh, got
12: to come back on for that, and either judge or
0: present.
16: Yes, definitely. I will. I will definitely come and um uh, and judge
1: that.
0: See yeah, that. you can oh, judge man. that one for sure. Uh, join us on Sunday because Woody basically had, he threw his toys out the pram and insisted on, uh, interviewing Alina and I. And about History Hack and why it started and how it started and what we plan to do in the future, which was quite fun. So that's going out on Sunday, and then our Christmas week is pretty epic. We've got Christmas folklore for you. We've got Nikolai Eberholst back, back, who everyone has a man crush on after his World War One shows. We have uh, the Battle of Ortona, uh, which was a Christmas period battle in world war Two. we have a down the pub special where we will be opening our secret santa presents which is going to be a whole nother level of burn i feel uh, and also as well we're playing a game whereby which most of the people in this room seem to have got the wrong idea about what you do you've each been allocated someone else from the pub you have to cast that person as a historical character, a real historical character. Uh, and then on new, we are doing a New Year's Eve one as well. We need to put a date in the book to record that where we're going to play historical shag marry kill with the fun being that for the kill bit, um, you actually have to plan how to off the person uh yeah so we'll be coming back to pay that we also have sharp specials for you we've had loads of people come on we're doing sharps company and sharps gold over christmas we have amazing people like hugh ross on and ian no ian mcneese is a later one isn't it but we have mark warren mark warren came and hung out with us um, a little bit shell-shocked i think yeah,
12: uh, james purifoy
0: james Ooh. purifoy is, but yeah he's i Absolutely. think that's not one of that's uh sharp sword, sword. Yeah, we've we've recorded quite a few ahead now because we're doing each episode. But yeah, we have spoken to the amazing Ian McNeese. We've had James on, who was hilarious. Uh, And you'll find out why he was tied to a horse with one arm behind (laughs) his back. uh, Cocky's back. Cocky's back as well, Michael Cockrell. Join us for all of that and more pub stuff. And we will do this history's worst historical film as well, which you are all welcome to come and join. Uh, Never seen Dorman so happy. Uh, So join us again for that.